Like it's just like whoever gets the most slaps in, they've won the battle, and everyone goes home. Yeah, red faced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So a fixed a fixed war. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing Witches Abroad, a book where three of our favourite witches find themselves wandering around the Discworld. And our guest is editor and bookseller Jackie Tang. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, Thanks for coming in. We got a pun before we even got past the intro. I mean, that's actually not that unusual. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, hi, hi, Jackie. How are you? Sorry, that was a, I got off track there. I was uh, excited by the pun. I'm doing well. I can understand. I feel like I need to get my pun capacity up to be amongst you guys. We don't even have a wand which is filled with punkins. Oh. Sorry, sorry, that was very bad. <laughs> well, you can, you do have the magic ability to turn anything into a pun, so I feel like that's appropriate. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, we all have our superpowers. Um, and Jackie, you're a you're a big Terry Pratchett fan. Yes, yes, I, I am. I gathered that impression. And you, you have a someone on Twitter was showing us their copy of the book, which was um, a very nice first edition hardcover. And you have the same edition of the book. Um, yeah. So I essentially have a slightly addictive collecting nature, and during mm-hmm. my uni days, the choice of my collection was going to be Terry Pratchett hardback. So I just went around online and bought a lot of secondhand books, many of them hardcover Terry Pratchett's. And then I gave my paperback Terry Pratchett's that I'd bought from secondhand bookstores to my friend's ex-boyfriend and never saw them again when they broke up six months later. Duh. I know. It's deeply upsetting. Yeah, I'd feel like he I, – I know. He probably appreciated them, so – Okay. Well, it's let, we'll, we'll imagine they went to a good home. That's right. And that if it wasn't a good home, they escaped. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and how did you get started reading Terry Pratchett? Um, so I started by just picking up uh, Color of Magic at my local library because it had that little red dragon sticker on the spine and really didn't like it. Which is, I think, yes. a familiar story <laughs> yeah. amongst a lot of your guests. <laughs> um, just, yeah, the wizards, the kind of jokes about uh, high fantasy. Maybe I was too young for them. Um, didn't read them for a while and actually watched those animated TV shows that were showing on the ABC mm-hmm. without realizing they were Discworld until many years later when I actually read the books and then picked up Weird Sisters and loved it. So, yeah, the, my, the witches were my entry point into Discworld. Oh. Fantastic. Well, we, I'm glad we got you for the right episode, then, yeah. didn't we? Fantastic. Yes. I'm glad you came back from Color of Magic because I wonder how many people are out there that didn't, that started, they're like, oh, well, it's not for me. And they're just out there with this perception that this is what the Discworld is. Yeah, I think a few people. Um, like yeah. 10? Uh, more than that. <laughs> more than that. I mean, 11? Scores of people. <laughs> As many dis- lots. <laughs> As we've discussed every time this has come up, uh, the Terry himself, like, told people not to start with Color of Magic, which I, I think is rough. I started with it. I loved it. I didn't get all the jokes. I hadn't read all of the things that it was clearly a parody of, but I, I enjoyed it. 
Um, but, you know, I see why a lot of people wouldn't. They, it is very different to the later books. Um, so, yeah, I've, I feel. Although, interestingly, as we might get on to, this book feels like it has a few things maybe in common with some of those early books. But we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I don't want to. I don't want to you got your precognition on? Or? I have got my precognition <laughs> on. I'm currently answering a question that someone's asking at the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, well, we, we do like to start with a reading of the blurb. See, the blurb on mine is two lines, and it is, you can't fight a happy ending, at least up until now, which is... That's, that's pretty it's good. A, it's succinct. Yeah, it, is, it is quite succinct. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in what the first edition's blurb is. It, it might, might be the same as mine, but let's find out. Well, okay, the first edition's is, it seemed an easy job. After all, how difficult could it be to make sure that a servant girl doesn't marry a prince? But for the witches, Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and McGrath Garlic, travelling to the distant city of Genua, things are never that simple. This is actually a really long one. Yeah. For one thing, all they've got is Mrs. Gogol's voodoo, a one-eyed cat, and a second-hand magic wand that can only do pumpkins. And they're up against the malignant power of the godmother herself, who has made destiny an offer it can't refuse. And finally, there's the sheer power of the story. Servant girls have to marry the prince. That's what life's all about. You can't fight a happy ending, at least up until now. Uh, that, interesting, because mine is the paperback that sort yeah. of is the you know, following edition of the book. And it has... Basically the same blurb, but with bits cut out. Oh. So it's, it's like the, the middle couple of paragraphs are cut out. My blurb is just the last line of your blurb. Yeah. Just yeah. as time goes on, just more gets just cut sliced it away. away. Maybe they just figure, look, everybody knows who Pratchett is. They're buying it because they know it's him. They don't really care what it's about. <laughs> yeah, like this is an entire itinerary of what actually happens in the yeah. book. I it's feel like, a- like we've part- partway done the podcast already reading that blurb. I think we talked about this in... Um, the Weird Sisters episode, but um, how do we imagine pronouncing the youngest witch's name of the three of them? See, I say Magrat. Yeah, I also say Magrat because it sounds the worst and it's repeatedly talked about how her name sounds the worst. But you had a different idea there, Jackie, when you were reading the blurb. Yeah, I always pronounced it Magrat in my head. but yeah, Or Magrat. Magrat. Was yeah. it? See, I don't even know. It just comes out of me. It's like, just a weird name because it's not a real name. I think it's one of those words that, like, when you're reading, your brain skims a little because it doesn't actually, like, correspond to anything that you've heard in real life. So you sort of just, like, make it up without thinking about what it sounds like. It's a real problem with fantasy novels um, in particular is that, yeah, they've got all these weird names in them and you don't, you only ever see them written on the page. You don't know how you're supposed to say them. Well, I went through years calling Hermione Hermione because that's how my dad said it was pronounced. And I was like, well, dad says that's how it's pronounced. And so I'm correct. And I spent years like correcting other people because <laughs> now I'm an editor. Wow. But yeah, <laughs> but I was the one who was wrong. Oh, does that, that's, that's awful. Well, maybe I'm not. Like, it's subjective. Well, it's also like those people who, you know, pronounce foreign words that have come into the English language from a foreign sort of language in that foreign language's pronunciation. Oh, like when people say croissant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If only we had some examples from the book of people doing (laughs) doing this. Now you've got your precognition on. Um, But we we should start at the start, I suppose, shouldn't we? How do we feel about the start of this book? Um, does it start with describing the Discord? I've forgotten because my brain immediately glosses over that, which is terrible, but it's because I've read it so many times. But I really liked the sort of ideas about the nature of stories, how mm. they're not just stories, they're always happening, and how rea- like reality as a 
thing is being explored here. Like that was so inelegantly described just then, but it's because yeah, it's it's very elegantly described in the book. So me trying to sum it up is just like trying to shovel the dictionary into a pocketbook. But yeah, yeah. I, well, I thought there was a couple of really clever things that he does at the start. I mean, he, he does set up that idea of stories. But one of the other the clever things I thought he did right at the start is the first footnote in the book, or maybe the second one. Um, but one of the really early ones, page is one, a, <laughs> uh, is about uh, urban myths. And I thought it was very clever for him to put that idea. Oh, yes, the second one is about urban myths, um, which I thought was really interesting. He put that idea in our head because later on he keeps talking about um, rural myths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's an urban myth, but not in the city. That's great. I love it. Um, and I thought it was nice that he sort of established that thing about urban legends. Um, although it's weird that he calls them urban myths because I've always thought of them as urban legends. And then when he... Later on, he says rural myths. I was like, oh, that's just because you didn't want to say rural legends. But no, he says urban myths as well. So there you go. I also had a note that there's a footnote on page one. I'm not sure if it's the same for all of your issues. On mine, the footnote's right there. And it's saying that science should focus on important things like catching that butterfly that keeps flapping its wings (laughs) and ruining everything. (laughs) That's on the first page of mine too, yeah. Yeah. But then we we get that sort of um, little glimpse of what's happening in in January, although we don't know that's where it is yet, um, with some... Clearly some voodoo going on, um, but the voodoo in the book is very much, it, it's kind of bits of traditional voodoo practicing, um, but also some other sort of folklore and mythy stuff, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I always felt like, um, I guess, reading this as a at a younger age and not sort of being as aware of it, even then I felt like he was dealing more with, I guess, popular conceptions of voodoo just because he was also doing fairy tales as well i didn't Mm. ever take it to kind of be a commentary of like real practices so much as stories about that kind of magic Mm. and it seems quite respectful in its way as well like it's never like this is evil or weird or bad which is one of the main criticisms of traditional kind of fictional depictions of voodoo is that it's seen as a sort of form of black magic or evil whereas here mrs goggle when we finally meet her um Mm. is very much depicted as someone who's kind of in that gray area like what she does could go either way depending on what she does with it and they have that really good conversation between her and nanny where they sort of present each other with the stereotypes of the kind of magic that each of them practiced and they go oh well i see your point but also yes we do just a couple of zombies and just just a few people into newts Yeah, yeah 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 that was great i was calling her mrs gogol yeah, me too. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I don't, well, I. So we have to have a fist fight at the end of. Well, I was wondering if she was named after the other famous um, Goggle, the, the Russian playwright. I thought that was also Gogol. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, maybe it is, and I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, again, I've, I've very rarely had to say that. I'm a Goggle. Out loud. Um, it's supposed to be, I'm a Goggle. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's fine. This is another yet another Discworld book that begins with somebody dying. It's really like, is it getting old by this point? Like how many books have started with somebody dying and failing to really properly prepare other people for what's about to come? I just never tire of seeing death in a book. Like, Yeah, no, completely. And I always love seeing death interact with witches as well. So mm. every time there's a witch book, I'm just like, yes, how is death going to come into this one? And she's just so like tiny minded, like she's already got it all like dug up out in the backyard and her coffin's there. And she's already made a plan with like the the woodsman to come past on his way back from work to bury because she doesn't want any like loose ends. And yeah, yeah. which is, uh, I mean, quite a bit more prepared than the previous witch that we accompanied when she met death. Mm. 
You know, she, mm. didn't, well, she didn't meet death. She met Morton. <laughs> she felt a bit ripped off. Um, but she left out um, some hay for the hoss, which was quite <laughs> good. That was nice, yeah. But yeah, I forgot to mention her name is Desiderata. Is that De- Desiderata? Desiderata. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is the name of a famous poem. Desiderata kind of did that thing where she's very prepared for death. She sent an envoy across to the witches' meeting to say, oh, I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be dead because they're all up on a mountain having their sort of annual. Yeah. 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 And so she's getting her death sort of things in order. And the one thing she hasn't done is train up a fairy godmother to replace her. It's just she's just like what's his name for yeah. moving pictures, you know. You got one job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's too busy out enjoying her life, you know, just traveling the world and writing up books about it. Yeah, she does sound awesome. Like her book, like her her house sounds really cool. Her life sounds really good, and everyone's like, "What? What's this weird woman who goes around with all these cool things around her house?" But yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I also do like the way that she basically explains the backstory to death, and he's just like. Whatever. <laughs> she, she has this like quite long sort of monologue where she's like, well, this is what happened and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, um, okay. Uh, nobody else knows that and uh, they have to find it out for themselves. That's a bit weird, but okay. Uh, but I, you know, get, lets us know what's happening, which was, which was nice. Yeah. And she's left a letter for, for Margaret, who she's decided will inherit the wand. Um, because we found out she just comes around and hangs out with her sometimes. But also I think because she has that confrontation with Lilith in the mirror. Mm. So she goes to the mirror, she sees Lilith, um, and Lilith tells her you've lost um, because she's dying. And so she has to kind of think about a way to get, I think she says that she needs to use headology yeah. to get um, granny yeah. and nanny out there. Yeah, because she's like, I've seen all three of them there, but I can't just tell them to go because then they won't go. Yeah. <laughs> so this is my way of getting them to go. I'm going to give the wand to Margaret and that's going to make them go. And, and tell her not to take them or tell her to tell them they can't go. Yeah. Just and it. it's hilarious how easy it is to manipulate the <laughs> works with a very bit of simple reverse psychology. Um, but it's hilarious. Yeah, um, which I love it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, they decide to – so basically she dies, that all happens, and while they're at the Sabbat, was it? Yeah. They, they sort of go, um, oh, we should probably um, go – go to her house and just make sure that her stuff's okay. Yeah, but that also, it's about this when we find out there's only four or five witches left in the Ram Tops, which is not very many um, because there's Granny and Nanny and Magret, but then there's also now with the death of Desiderata, there's only Gamma Brevis and Old Mother Dismas who um, <laughs> doesn't just have her precognition turned on like uh, Mrs. Cake, but actually has it wandering back and forth. So you never know what part of the conversation she's responding to. And she says quite a salacious thing, which you um, don't realize until you sort of go back through, because they said that she could be responding to anything from as far back as last Hogsmith or whatnot. But they talk about, like, they, they make this joke about what is essentially sex toys being brought back from oh, yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. And they all sort of try to imagine it. And then at the end, she describes what is clearly her using one. <laughs> did, did i miss that yeah it was very oh yeah it was very elegantly done what did, what did she say she was like oh we were using it and then a bit fell off or something like it was oh, just oh yeah oh yeah. yeah oh yeah we had one once but the bit you unscrew fell off and got lost <laughs> that's right i was like Ooh, oh this is like really quite some salacious stuff oh, wow yeah i did not pick up that's what she took that's amazing so it okay. sound like a really like prudish like <laughs> All boys school person. Oh, look, there's a titillating thing. But yeah. You're like, Granny, you can't be having with those sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like my reaction to hearing the hedgehog's got a, what, 
no, I've just merged the two songs. I was like, the hedgehog's got a knob on its end. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now that's a song uh, just waiting to happen. Wow, three knobs, right? Oh, uh, but what's well, the actual? It's an echidna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! But they they finish. They go to the cottage to look for the wand, and Nanny and Granny have that nice little sort of like argy bargy where it's like, oh, I'm going to go. Uh, oh well, maybe I'll go. All right, we'll both go at lunchtime tomorrow, and then they both turn up like. And that the crack night. of dawn. Oh, the yeah. crack of dawn. That's yeah. right. Yeah, they both turn up at the same time, way too early, <laughs> and they can't tell each other off because they're both doing the same thing. <laughs> but it's not there. One's not there. Yeah, and um, Nanny's not really looking for it. It's more Granny is looking for it, and then she catches a glimpse in a mirror and gets real freaked out. So yeah, yeah, she punches it, mm. smashes it, which kind of sets up the sort of mystery of what's going on with these mirrors and who is this person. Um, although I, it, it's. It's not. It doesn't take too long before you kind of. I mean, I knew because I'd read the book before, but it doesn't. It does sort of really heavily imply what's going on with this other person. Oh, I saw. I saw Granny in the mirror. Oh, yeah, but it wasn't her. No, she's freaked out by this. And anyway, do you remember Granny's family? <laughs> and all these people remember you. Yeah. And yeah, there's, yeah. There's there's an actual line in there somewhere that's mm. like. Families are funny things, and there's no context for it except that they've just been talking about Lilith, and you're like. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, it's mean? very heavily foreshadowed, I mm. feel like. But I think Cratchit does a lot of foreshadowing in this particular book. Like mm. there's, yeah, lots of little Chekhov's red slippers and things dropped around at the start, <laughs> of, uh, the start of the book. And then big things drop down on Chekhov's red slippers. Yes, mm. very large. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But um, um, so Magrat eventually shows up, doesn't she? Is that what happened? And she's been not really participating in witch things because she has been trying to find herself, which Granny doesn't really hold with. And mm. she's even gone so far as to send away to get a course on being a ninja from, from <laughs> Lobsang <Lob-Sang> Dibbler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the, the way of that. Well, because she started off with the, the – well, she's using the way of the scorpion or the path of the scorpion, but there's a footnote talking about the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite <laughs> because the idea is that when you're seeking wisdom – uh, wisdom is one of the few things that looks bigger the further away it is. <laughs> Which I thought was a great, great gag. And I'm like, yeah, people, there's that, such that mania where people like just go, yes, this is, this is a secret from the far reaches of wherever. And you're like, oh, yes, well, it must be very important and smart then. It's like you don't know where it's from. And just that weird image of like monks traveling to Ankh-Morpork to stare through Miss Cosmopolite's window yeah. and she just thinks they're perfs. Which they are. Yeah. But I think she's probably used to that in Ankh-Morpork as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> that Mrs. Cosmopolite, the seamstress, who was working in Hollywood only a few books ago. So it's nice. It's one of those things where there's so many, at, by this stage, there's so many little little callbacks to other books that if you didn't know what they were, it wouldn't matter. But when you do know what they are, you're like, oh, that's nice. It's like bumping into your cousin at a wedding. The other thing I liked in that section is that he talks about inspiration particles, mm. and how Margaret's mm. really opened her mind so wide that she, her mind is the kind of mind that's just really receptive to them, uh, which is why she's got all these sort of slightly weird ideas that don't quite fit into the Discworld and certainly not the idea of witchcraft. But I also quite enjoyed the way in this book, like Verence is hardly mentioned at all. Yeah, because they were going to live happily ever after. And then she decided, like, it's just the one line. It's like, well, no, two lines. It's she didn't want to be a sex object, mm. which someone else says on her behalf. And then later when she's comparing Verence in her mind to the duck or someone like that. Yeah. She's like a hardworking prince who's like of a small town versus like this fairy tale. 
sort of thing. Yeah, as well. he's all like blue eyes, like gemstones and stuff like that. Yeah, it was. I thought that was interesting. I mean, the end of Weird Sisters. It's very clear that things are not going to quite go in that heavily happily ever after direction. At least not smoothly, because they're kind of not talking to each other. Kind of are like it's very it's sort of a bit up in the air what's going on with them at the end of Weird Sisters, and so then for it not to be addressed in this book at all, I thought it was or hardly at all. I thought it was a little bit weird because I never really, yeah, apart from those two lines, I never really talk about it. I think it's interesting because it almost feels like Pratchett wants, like, wants to have Magrat um, mm. in, uh, like, sort of give her like one last hurrah. Like, I feel like he wanted a book where the three witches were just by themselves and he could explore the dynamics between the three of them mm. um, without necessarily having her sort of sidelined into a royal plot um, or, you know, like becoming a queen rather than, you know, just being herself as a witch. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's like he grew to like her so much he didn't want to just shut her in a box for storytelling. Yeah, and it's only a couple of books later that it is her wedding, so it's... Maybe, yeah, he just decided, oh, well, I want to do that story. I know what that story is going to be. But before we do that, yeah, let's send her off on this adventure. Yeah. I think the strength of this book is definitely in, like, the dynamics between the three witches. And I feel like it's the one where you really get a sense of who they are personally um, and how they sort of relate to each other. So it's really interesting in the, um, I think, uh, so in that scene where McGrath comes Margaret, sorry. However you, there's no correct Yeah, answer. I'm just going yeah. to wander here and there. Um, <laughs> Very good. So she, she comes and meets Granny and Nanny in um, Desiderata's cottage and basically says, oh, um, I... I have the wand yeah. um, and she gave it to me like very meekly um, and Granny's like, no, give it here and she like does have that spine and she sticks up for herself and says, no, she gave it to me. Um, but there is that one thing that she says where she's like, um, witches aren't hierarchical mm-hmm. um, in protest to Granny when Granny orders her to give it to her. And I was just like, that's really – I loved that Pratchett was exploring because they're not non-hierarchical because – they don't, you know, they respect everyone's position. It's because they're all like, they all have to think of themselves as the only one, right? Mm. They're solitary. So I felt like it's good that Pratchett was exploring that sort of dynamic where every one of them is that stubborn kind of woman who won't sort of like retreat. Yeah. But they're very different kinds of stubborn women as well. So Mm. like forcing them all to be together for like an entire book is just interesting to see how it sort of devolves and evolves as well. But through the fights and things that they get. Yeah. But they do eventually somehow manage to get a plan together, which is that they're all going to go to this place, Genua, and they're going to try and fulfill Desiderata's wish, which is to stop the girl marrying the prince. Although they don't really know any more about it than that. And they they don't get much of a... I mean, I think one of the things I realized rereading this book, I really enjoyed the trip that we go on and the adventure that happens. But for the first half of the book, there's... The plot is not really present. Like, there's no real threat. Like, we're going to Genua to do this thing, and there's a weird su- presence in the mirror, but there's no, like, the stakes are really not established. I'm like, well, what happens if she does marry the prince? Like, I have no idea. Why is that important? I don't know. So this is, again, where um, I'm going to... Com- this is the first time I'm going to compare this book to Shrek or Shrek to this book <laughs> because that stuff, the travel stuff, is kind of like the joyful bit that happens between... Fiona being rescued from the dragon and then making their way to Duloc to deliver her for her wedding. And it's just the, the fun travel 
journey they have on the way, mm. but paced differently because for half the book it is just the fun journey. And, yeah. yeah. It's also kind of like those um, like 19th century sort of uh, travelogues, you know, like people who – like the books that are about – I can't remember, like Lawrence Stern wrote one, um, but it's sort of just about people going to the continent and every chapter sort of like, you know, encountering a different um, – sort of member of this new society and how that sort of opens your mind to kind of new ideas. Like I feel like it's very much in that sort of vein of, yeah, like the 19th century eat, pray, loves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it is, I mean, it, it feels like a sort of ramble through a mishmash of just European stuff, um, apart from the first couple of stops they have, which are very much a mishmash of more Middle Earth kind of stuff as they find some dwarves in a mine with their secret invisible runes on the door. Um, and The Emperor's new runes. The Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're invisible. You can't see them. <laughs> the wizard charges for them, so they have to be there. <laughs> yeah. um, I, think, I thought that was great. And then that's got, and this is something somebody mentioned on the Twitter, uh, just after they meet the dwarves and head on their way, um, they're in a boat when a weird frog-like creature swims up to them and says, it's my birthday. <laughs> and then they take one look at it and at each other and then sort of bonk it on the head and get the hell out of Dodge, you know. And, and they're like, we don't know who that was or what it was about. Um, I think and- Nanny, or maybe Nanny says something like, oh, it's a horrible creature or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And I just, it was just delightful. There's, there's often not that much... Tolkien reference in the Discworld books, even though it seems like such an obvious thing to parody. Uh, and the dwarves sometimes have some, you know, Tolkien dwarfish kind of traits. Um, the elves are really nothing like Tolkien elves when they do show up. But this this book's got those few moments that I just really, I just really liked that. That was great. I guess it makes sense for this book because he's parodying so many different kinds mm. of stories. Like mm. that travelogue is, I guess, also, you know, them kind of flitting in and out of different stories from spoiler alert, Dracula to the Wizard of Oz to, you know, Huckleberry Finn even. <laughs> like he's really running the gamut of yeah. different kinds of parodies. The Dracula one I do want to mention a bit because I don't think we need to spend too much time on the story of the trip itself, but there's just so many bits where they dip in and out. And the Dracula one was kind of weird because I'm like, where are they exactly? Because we know later on, like um, when vampires show up as main characters, we find out a lot more about the country that they're from, which is sort of this you know, weirdly Transylvania-like place. But this this is like one tiny little... It's like, it reminded me of Ravenloft, which is like a Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting that was invented so that you could take your Dungeons and Dragons characters basically into a Dracula story. <laughs> um, it's this tiny little domain, mostly dominated by a, a castle where there's a vampire. It feels like they've wandered into Ravenloft, and this is exactly what would happen. The vampire, his name is um, Strad. This is what would happen to him: <laughs> and accidentally get eaten by their cat. You know, um, and I thought that was funny, but also just it was really weird. Um, but then I got into it. It took me a little while to get into it, but I got into it. But it also just gives us the great scenes of um nanny and granny forced to share a room and share a bed <laughs> oh, yeah. and granny's just like that great traveler who i'm not going to be holding with any of this foreign nonsense for the whole trip she like gets into bed with all of her clothes and her <laughs> shoes on and all of that yeah. and was it she wakes up in the night and nanny's eating something like it was a garlic sausage yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's eating it in bed and then they throw it out the window and then you 
you hear their whole scene happen and then you see it from the bat's perspective where it's been hit by all these things. It's been hit by like a sausage. It's been hit by like a window opening and then suddenly Grebo. This is a story that they wander into and they really know nothing about. Like the witches are totally oblivious to what's going on. They don't pick up any of the signs and they don't, I mean, they've clearly never read Dracula for starters, but also um, they've never seen a Dracula movie and they don't seem to know anything about vampires, which given, you know, later mm. events in um, Carpe Jugulum or, or Jugulum, uh, I'm, I'm pronouncing it how I think it Jugulum. should be pronounced in another <laughs> language now, aren't I? Uh, but, you know, they, they seem to know plenty about vampires then. So it seems weird that they don't put two and two together in this book. Maybe they've read Desiderata's books in the interim. Or maybe they know, like, the Uberwald vampires. And so because it's not Uberwald, they're like, they don't necessarily make that connection that this is what's happening. I think it's also kind of sort of hinted that a lot of these um, scenes that they're in have magic as well, mm. that possibly they've been influenced by an outside party to kind of like follow a very specific narrative. So the stories. Yeah. And that's why like people do things, even though they don't really think about why they're doing it. It could also just be that, you know, Terry hasn't figured that part out. Yet. <laughs> he just wants to do a funny bit where they're going to get eaten by a vampire. Yeah, he just wants to put a garlic sausage in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. but I really like that idea because they did say that, some of the things, especially the um, the Red Riding Hood one, is like as someone's gone through and practiced their story making for their masterpiece, mm. which is kind of like what Lilith has done. So that could very much be it. Like that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Although this is, it feels like it's more as a, a scenario rather than a story because it's sort of the setup before the story happens and they wander into it. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking that now. But, but it's also them kind of, you know, they're the bicarbonate of – like storytelling, right? So it's almost like, I guess, Terry's setting up from being a very small piece of bicarbonate to being larger and larger. Like they're also practicing their ability to stop the narrative. Yeah, and also just in vampire stories, ignoring all of Buffy, usually it's men who defeat vampires. So like if there was a story happening in this, they wouldn't expect the the two little old ladies and the, the young woman to come in and defeat it. They'd just be like fodder in the backstory. Also, um, just going back on that, what was it? They get called a mum and an old hack or something, and then Magret and Nanny get it the wrong way around. Who are you calling a mother? Who are you calling a, a maiden? That's a right, Nanny. Yeah, like, who are you calling right. a maiden? That's right. <laughs> Which I thought was that was great. I also really like when they're on their way in and they think they've seen a bat, and Nanny goes, "Oh yeah, I've I've read about this. It's deflabbergast. <laughs> like, what? It's this foreign for bat, like." <laughs> no, it isn't, Danny. It isn't, but it's hilarious, is what it is. Um, so that was look. That, so that's a great little uh, sort of aside. It doesn't really seem to have much to do with the plot, um, but that's fine. It was it was good fun. I'd have read a whole book of that, to be honest. Like uh, of them just going to villages and wreaking <laughs> havoc. Or... <laughs> yeah, there is one last bit I want to mention from this, which is when they're flying on the broomsticks for a while after they leave, where they sort of almost, but not quite, invent the first Discworld airline. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's hilarious. Like, we could get a really big broomstick, like you could make it out of a tree, but you need one person to fly it. You need somebody else to, like, you know, greet them and greet the people coming on. Yeah, yeah that's right. Nanny has to be like the cook, and then Granny's all, what, what, what would I do? And they're like, someone who can greet them and, you know, tell them what happens when the broomstick goes down. Yeah. yeah. And Granny's just like, they'll die. It's like, well, they'll have to know how to die. <laughs> yeah. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Uh, but then they, they do, they get on the riverboat for a bit of gambling, as it turns out. And this just, it just reminded me of that film Maverick with Mel Gibson. 
Oh, that section's my favorite though. Like basically, um, just to give a quick recap, Granny somehow loses all their money playing cards because she's clearly been hustled by card sharps. Is it card see, I thought it was card sharks for a really long time, but then someone else is like, it's card sharps. And both make sense to me. It's not card sharks? Because that makes sense. Because no, they're like it's loan shark. shark. Oh. And card sharp. But I think it okay. has like card shark has become a thing because of people mashing those two things together. Okay. And sharks are sharp. They're pointy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, and apparently their skin is really rough. Sharp's also not a noun. I just feel like it doesn't yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about this in the Dodger episode. The imagery of card sharks is just so good though. Like just swimming around waiting for chum in the water to get like someone like nanny in there and so um to get their money back and also because she's angry and she's been wronged granny goes in there and plays the the old woman who doesn't understand what's going on so she goes in and they this is again some good like signposting he like talked about the mirror and i was kind of like why is she describing the mirror and she sort of gets a deck of cards and then suddenly these guys go oh would you like to play with us she's like oh i don't really know how to play so you you nice young men will teach me won't you and yeah. Yeah. No, it's quite amazing. And she destroys all their cheating mechanisms. Like she yep, makes the mirror smash and the guy's mechanism up his sleeve, which like <laughs> he suddenly goes, ah, <laughs> actually springs like stabbing him in the arm, um, crumpled bit of cards coming out of his sleeve. Cause yeah. um, Nanny and Magga are really worried. She's going to use magic to win, but she only uses magic to stop them from cheating. Mm. Yeah. She's actually just very good at cards. <laughs> Yeah. So, and we get, this is like the first look I think we get at a detailed game of Cripple Mr. Onion. Yeah, you get a bit more sense about how it works in this section. Did you have any real life kind of alternatives to what you thought that game is? It's like poker, but with like some happy families, like things thrown in the side. Yeah. 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 It's very much about, it, it, it is about making a good hand and getting a set, um, but the hands are much bigger, like, because at one point someone's like got nine cards yeah. on the table. Um, but there's ways to, it, it's got, it, it's clearly very complicated. Um, and it's got that great bit at the end where he's like, Oh, I've got a perfect onion. It's <laughs> like clearly For the like a full time. house or a, a, well, it's like the equivalent of a royal flush, you know, um, or and, 13 wonders from, um, from Mahjong, which is, oh, yeah, it's a real rare. I've only got it once. And it was the best moment of my life. <laughs> Bar none. All my loved ones listening. <laughs> that was the best moment of my life. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the amazing hand that is so hard to get, basically, mm. um, that you pretty much, it's unbeatable. And they've gone all in or something like that. And also for broomsticks. Yeah. Cause Nanny, Nanny lost her broomstick. Oh, Nanny. Oh, I can't, I find it hard to believe Nanny, like, th- that was one bit of that book where I was like, I understand that one of you's got to do this for there to be the amazing payoff of Granny's amazing gambling. But I would have thought Nanny would be a good gambler. And not gullible. She's a witch for starters. But has she been drinking a little? Because I feel like <laughs> nonstop. Yeah, like they've okay. been guzzling down the absinthe. Yeah, at Pamplona, I, but not really. Yeah, and I feel like she's probably just continuing that through all of their <laughs> different yeah. stops. And I also have another theory, which is that Granny, it's conf- she's confusingly described as sort of credulous and innocent, but she doesn't come across that way at all because she's like very knowing in lots of other ways. But my theory is because she's so respected by her giant family, she might think she's good at gambling, but I feel like her family would let her win at all things Mm. because she'll get angry or it's disrespectful not to. So she's probably, it's like playing the same person in chess all the time. If they're worse than you, you don't get better. So she probably thinks she's good at games, 
when she's playing against someone who doesn't want, who doesn't respect her, then they're not letting her win. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, he's got his perfect onion. He's like, you can't do anything about that. And he starts grabbing the chips and stuff towards him. And she's like, I can if I can cripple it. He's like, (laughs) now we know why it's called Cripple Mr. Onion. Wow. Oh, so good. So good. After that, Tobacco, they're like, well, they're probably going to be quite angry because Granny wins lots of money. Like, I think Nanny only loses about $17, but then Granny wins like 70 or something. Like, it, it's loads of money. Mm. Um, so they decide we should probably leave. They're going to be angry and they fly off. Uh, and then they get closer to Genua. And this is where they start running into stories that are more traditionally fairy tale. Uh, they spot a castle, but there's something not quite right about it because it's covered in ivy and cobwebs. This is the section where they obviously go into the castle and everyone's asleep and we start seeing Granny kind of, you know, get really annoyed at everything that she's seeing. Like I think she takes it very personally Um, and they start talking about how this might be a Black Alice job. Mm. And I always love like the mentions of Black Alice in the witches' books because they're always just like, oh, you know, she wasn't that bad and, you know, she just – Eight, one or few, one or two children just at the went end. A bit really, funny at the yeah. End. She just went a bit funny, you know. Yeah. Um, and they shoved her in her own oven. That's that's not good. Yeah, terrible thing. What happened with that oven? Um, <laughs> and we also start seeing, I guess, the theme of the book in that section about what's magic and what's real. And I think mm. this is where Granny starts giving, you know, getting really angry that things have to be real to matter. Mm. Yeah, and it, there's um that. The thing about the Black Alice job mentioned too is that, you know, Granny sort of hints she has or someone like her. And then when they wake up the people in the castle, they all recognize her or they think they do, mm. which is, a, you know, again, another big tip off that who is this person who's been doing this stuff and why does she look like Granny Weatherwax? And, of course, if you've read the book before, you're like, you know why, but it's still. And they recognize her angrily. So they start sort of, they chase them out of the castle, even though they're the ones who sort of wake them up. This is also one of several times in the book where they use the word, the actual witches use the word psychology. I'm like, mm. if you know the word psychology, why do you keep calling it headology? <laughs> There's headology and psychology. Is oh, it like, doesn't well, have an extra G. Well they, are, well, they also use psychology as a noun because yeah. they talk about someone having a psychology. Well, Nanny says Nanny Granny says, has a psychology. Yeah. Which she does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> But they, yeah, they they free the people from the the castle. They uh, they, they just um, throw the spinning wheel out of the window, and <laughs> smash it to me pieces. They're lucky that they didn't summon Glod doing that. Oh yeah, oh. yeah. Sorry, how do you think they know how to short circuit these stories? Is it just that they've heard these stories so many times that they know exactly what to do, or do they do a bit of magic to kind of figure out? I, what which story they're in i think there's two things going on there's they talk about how witches have a really good sense for stories almost like they just know how they're supposed to go even if they've not heard the story told but also the way that terry describes urban legends in that footnote right at the start really kind of suggests that well these things really do happen and there's a couple of times when they talk about these things where nanny's like oh yeah i heard it. this happened over in scunds and blah 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 and and but we know that people really have been put to sleep in a castle before like black alice has done that Mm. those things really do happen but they don't necessarily happen to you you sort of hear about them happening two villages over in the same way that you hear about you know oh yeah like this cousin has a a cousin of mine's got a friend whose uncle said that this thing happened to his ex-girlfriend like you know the, the same way that urban legends are always about someone just sort of out of your reach 
But we think I think these things really do happen on the disc world and that's how they hear about them. Yeah, I just wonder, like, if, if someone were to set a trap for the witches, they could just configure the story so that doing or getting rid of the central object in the story actually, like, sets off a chain of even more disastrous things. It's really good that you're not a fairy godmother. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> this book would have been very different. We'll figured out a way around it. Um, now, that's, that, that is interesting, though. And I think yeah. there's also the sense that the stories know how they're supposed to go and you can only push them out of shape so far before mm. they fall apart. Uh, but that doesn't mean someone couldn't find a way to do that. And it's also the really interesting thing that sort of pops up progressively more towards the as the book gets towards its conclusion that both fairy godmothers think of themselves as the good one. Like Lilith doesn't understand that she's – like Lilith is, from our perspective, the bad one, mm. but from her perspective, she's – the good one. Does she not understand it though, or is she just trying to use the story to make herself the good one? I kind of got that impression that she knows full well that what she's doing is evil, but she's put herself in the story in the position of the good one because she's the fairy godmother who gets the girl to marry the prince. But she knows that's not what she really is. She's manipulating the story to make herself into that role. I think she thinks she's good yeah. and she thinks she's doing the necessary evils for the greater good. But I, I think, think, yeah, I think she is thinking that she's good because at some point she says something like, in 100 years, it won't matter that she doesn't want to marry the prince now. I think she has that kind of like long term view of wanting to make the best story for like, you know, for people in the future. She's like, the bigger picture is that this story goes ahead, everyone is happy and ordered in this village. It's, I think I always bring it back to Brave New World, but like the people who came up with the, the echelons of society where everyone's brainwashed to think they're happy to fulfill their function in society, they probably think they're doing good because everyone is arguably happy. She's doing the same kind of thing in Genua where everyone is forced to look the the right role and do the right thing. Big picture wise, she thinks it's good even if a few individuals are unhappy. Mm. Mm. Well, it reminds me actually quite a lot of a Doctor Who story called The Happiness Patrol, which would have been on TV about three or four years before this book was written. It's very clearly a parody of Thatcherite Britain, but it's a colony that's been established where being sad has been outlawed and everyone has to be happy. And it's headed up by this woman named Helen A who forces everyone to be happy. And if she finds out that you're not happy, that's a crime and she puts you to death. It's a very similar idea in that, you know, she wants everyone to be happy. She thinks that's what the point of life is. And so she can just make everyone happy by executing anyone who doesn't conform to all the things that she thinks is going to make people happy. And Lilith is doing the same thing, but with her being a fairy tale kingdom. And it's similar again to Duloc and Lord Farquhar and Farquhar. I don't think it's the same thing with Lilith, but he's trying to create a stable society that conforms to his idea of happiness, irrespective of how unhappy that makes people to do that pantomime. It looks on the surface very good and nice, but everyone's deeply unhappy to make it good and nice. Yeah. It's like that thing where you spray paint the grass green and all of that and it looks nice, but everyone's got paint inhalation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, before they get to Genua, though, they encounter a few more of these stories, more advanced, practiced versions, I suppose, of what Lilith is trying to achieve in Genua. Basically, the three witches meet a little girl in the woods. She tells them that she's going to be visiting their granny and... Granny and Nanny are both like, oh, yes, of course you are. Um, and so they go ahead to the granny's house. And then when – so they're waiting there for the wolf. And then when the wolf actually comes, it's this really horrifying image of 
a wolf that's trying, a physical wolf that's trying to walk on its hind legs and all it can do is sort of like howl like in a vaguely human way and when Granny actually, you know, looks into the mind of the wolf, she realises it's a predator that thinks it's a human and it's horrific because he thinks he's two things at once which I think is, yeah, one of like the most emotional parts Mm. of the book actually really brings like the reality of how horrifying magic can be if it were to be like implanted into the modern, not into the modern world, but into the real world. Particularly mind control magic, which is so often the basis of fairy stories. Everyone's being enchanted and charmed by magic all the time. And when we look at that through a modern lens and we're like, well, people's, you know, ability to choose and their free will is being taken away and they're being forced to be things that are other than who they are. It's affecting their very identity. And that's like kind of really horrifying. And there's a side point where Magrat's getting progressively more irritated that the other witches don't use magic. And she's like, we should use magic more. And Granny's very adverse to that. And I think this is a kind of moment that shows what Granny's afraid of with using magic too much. Mm. Yeah, particularly because we know that she could do all this stuff if she wanted to. Well, she has done it once. There's like a side, another side point that once someone, Mr. Wilson, I think, like Mr. Wilkins annoyed her and she made him think that he was a frog, Yeah, but she didn't actually make him into a frog. So there's something kind of like a very fine line there for Granny Mm. where it's like you can't actually change the thing on the outside you shouldn't kind of split their identity like that because it's it it's not sustainable yeah Mm. and i got the feeling too that doing that to a human is not as horrifying as doing it to an animal because an animal Mm. they they go they talk about how the the mind of a predator is a very sharp pointy simple thing like it just knows things and and at one point they also describe you know like the mind of an ant which is just like pick up this thing carry it over there pick up the other thing get into that sandwich like stuff like that (laughs) which i thought was hilarious but um that animals have very simple straightforward minds and forcing them to think like human beings is horrible for them because it's their brains can't handle it Mm -hmm. whereas going the other way is sort of insinuated to be weird and maybe a little bit cruel but not that awful like because yeah. mr wilkins recovers after a, a little while and then he just likes swimming <laughs> like, yeah they just build a pond to. in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 uh, which i thought was cute and they sort of go yeah he's got a whole new lease on life you're like yeah. oh good yeah but this wolf he's been like this for a few years and it's very sad and of course after that's all resolved after granny's hit him with the frying pan i think mm. the huntsman shows up because that's the story and yeah the it's just really sad because, like, mm. she can see how tortured the wolf is and the wolf just really wants to die. Yeah. And he even, like, lays his head down on the block and it's just really very sad. Yeah. And she also, I think, afterwards talks to the woodcutter. He says, oh, yeah, this wolf's been around for years and this old lady's been living in this cottage for years. And she's like, why didn't you visit? Why is she living out in the woods far li- away yeah, from the Yeah, exactly. Like- I thought yeah. that was a really good question. I'm like, yeah. yeah, why does Little Red Riding Hood's grandma live on the other side of the woods from all the other places, all the other villages? Like, it's not In this okay. decrepit house that she can't clean because she keeps thinking everyone's there is like pixies to help her and she keeps trying to give them sources of rancid milk oh, to, to clean it. That's the impetus for that really big fight between her and Margaret because – as they leave, Margaret's like, oh, isn't it lovely that, you know, they did end up helping the old lady and actually Granny's, like, threatened them yeah. <laughs> with, like, her version of the horseman's word, basically, for humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, they they get into it. Margaret says, like, what's the use of being a witch if you can't do magic? And Granny says something like, oh, what makes you think you're a witch? Oh, like, yeah. It gets real nasty, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. There are burns being thrown around. And Nanny's just trying to mediate because she knows that this can cause big rifts. It's really difficult for her to keep the peace because that, that argument goes really quite deep. Particularly Nanny, uh, Granny saying nasty things about Magret, but Magret also trying to say some nasty things about Granny. She just doesn't have the right ammunition, I don't think. Mm. They find themselves walking through a field and ignoring each other, Nanny in the middle, and mm. then suddenly a house drops on her. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What? Now, I, <laughs> Excuse I, me. I've totally <laughs> forgotten that this happened in the book. And although I kind of, when she was wearing the red boots at the start, like it was Chekhov's red boots, I was like, yeah. oh, something's going to happen with those, isn't it? Um, but I'd forgotten about this. And I, I found it really interesting because I, when I was reading it, I didn't twig that, you know, the, the vampire section was basically them visiting a vampire story. I just thought, you know, it was a weird European place to go in the same way as they end up in that sort of Spanish kind of place where there's the, the thing with the bulls as they describe <laughs> it, which I thought was great. Um, but, um, I found a bit odd that the Wizard of Oz in here, like this is a book that was written, well, a little bit over a century ago now, I think, um, if I've got my timelines right. Uh, and it doesn't, I, I never quite think of it in the same way as I think of other fairy tales. And and yet, you know, in things like Once Upon a Time or any of those stories or like fables, which are about fairy story creatures sort of all getting together, it's often included but I feel like it's kind of its own thing. Did you find that weird or did you think it fit in pretty well? Yeah, actually one of my notes, which I've highlighted as being like a super note, is Wizard of Oz, not a fairy tale. And I know that not all of it is fairy tales, but I did find its inclusion really interesting. The thing that I love about the book that's not part of the film, which I think changes the story entirely, is that the Emerald City is an emerald. It's just a normal city where they make everyone put on emerald glasses before you go in because it's going to be, ooh, too dazzling. Your eyes can't deal with the, with the glare, but actually you're wearing emerald tilted glasses, tinted glasses so that it looks emerald to you when actually underneath it, the reality is mundane, which is kind of what's going on here. Mm. Like Lilith's magic is making what's a normal town, not what it is. It's like the emerald tinted glasses, but on everything. So I don't think that's why it's in there, but I just found that an interesting sort of parallel. I don't know. As you said, it's not all fairy tales, although this particular section is. But also we're moving into Genua, which I feel like is like maybe um, Pratchett kind of wanted us to transition from like these woodland sort of stories into the stories that kind of take place in a grand castle in a city and this was sort of the wizard of oz is um with you know the emerald city is kind of a mythical way of talking about a city so i felt like that transition was okay but i agree like it's not a fairy tale Mm. not sure i guess it's a children's classic which is the closest that you can say and something like peter pan for example is the same kind of story where it's very clearly written in you know not too long ago but Mm. we still incorporate it into our modern myth and has christian anderson as well like his stuff is considered a fairy tale even though he wrote it in like the 1800s i think yeah is this a deliberate trap to stop any other witches coming to genua because it's a story about a witch who gets killed and it also huh. sets up a good witch and a bad witch. And I think, I feel like there's kind of an intimation that that's the case in the way that Lilith sort of is a bit angry that 
it hasn't killed any of them. Is that why they Dorada sends three? Because two are expendable. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's very... I can see Desperado doing that. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, Nanny's only saved because she has that super epic fancy hat that was on her set that's, like, got all of the built-in things that protected her. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Reinforced willow or something, yeah. which I, I really hat. want to see what this hat looks like. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoyed the bit, too, where just after she's been hit on the head, like, she's saying things and um, Granny's like, she's rambling. And he says, no, I ain't. This is my normal talking. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that is your normal talking. <laughs> Don't you go change it, Nanny. Um, yeah. Oh, and the dwarves who are, like, singing the song. Ding-dong song. They're just coming <laughs> home from work and they're like, oh, this, this again. We get compelled to sing the ding-dong song. <laughs> Yeah, and we can we have her shoes. Is <laughs> the other thing? And they're like, "What do you want with them?" And like, mm, drink out of them. I don't know. <laughs> it's like in Harry Potter, how around the Triwizard Tournament they set up appointment like things so that if you're a Muggle approaching, you remember you you have an appointment, you go away. <laughs> yes. But yeah. Yeah, this is a bit more direct. Yeah. <laughs> Drop a house on you. Yeah, like as soon as they step into something, it's like triggers all of the stories and they start like cascading down on the witches. Mm. Or Lilith is just so crazy that she's done this to like multiple villages in the entire circumference around Genua. Yeah. <laughs> like she's just got a wolf in every forest wow. or every 100 square meter of a forest. Oh, that's very upsetting. Yeah. The idea I of think, that. But I feel like she would be the kind of person who would do that. Just all directions, cover all bases, all the practice. Well, I guess it should need to as well, I guess, because if you want to have a magic kingdom that's made up of all the fairy stories, well, they can't all happen in the city because not Mm. all fairy stories happen in the city. A lot of them happen in the woods. You've got to have a nearby woods. You've got to have wolves roaming them. Uh, What's happening in their water? Because we don't even get to see that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if it's near, I don't think Genua is near the ocean, but, you know, if it was, presumably people would be catching those magic wishing fish all the time and meeting mermaids. Yeah. Ladies turning into seals. Yeah. All all that stuff. Women distributing swords as a system of government. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Moistened bints. How much better would life be if there were no weapons, like, ever invented and things like, and just medieval battles were just people slapping one another? (laughs) (laughs) With herring or something? Like, just with fish. Like it's just like whoever gets the most slaps in, they've won the battle, and everyone goes home. Yeah, red faced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So a fixed, a fixed war, and now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They should just have a dance off. It should just be a massive dance off. That was an aside. It's the book. I yeah. feel like this book is the lack of plot up until this point. Mm. Mm. It just feels. Uh, but the wolf. Sorry, just jump back. That that just yeah, it got me in a weird place. I was like, I'm not supposed to feel this emotional in a book. But yeah. Uh, what? Well, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't expect it for the bit that's about a wolf that's killing people. Uh, but I, I agree. I felt more emotional about that than most of the other parts of the book. Mm. Yeah. I think the cost of the magic kind of really comes through in that scene. Mm. And, and because animals are so, you know, like we're conditioned to sort of feel like animals are just themselves or they're a little bit helpless or, you know, that mm. we, that humans tend to ruin things for animals. I think that that really hits us. Yeah. pretty closely yeah. um, but it's uh, after that and after the the Wizard of Oz house incident uh, that they finally make their way to the city of Genua where they're almost not let in because they're a bit grubby it's only because they're holding brooms and thought to be cleaners that uh, the manager lets them in essentially yeah. and as usual Nanny is the one who like seizes the moment and is yep. like yeah we're going to pretend to be cleaners don't pride this is not a time for pride Esme let's get in there 
And no one treats them with respect because they're used to having a certain amount of respect as witches, but people jostle them and all kinds of stuff. And that's like, that's a recurring theme actually along their journey that people don't know what witches are. Yeah. And witches don't know what steak tartare is. It's <laughs> 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 true. It's true. Um, but yeah, they get in and it's, it's super clean. It's like the middle of the city is all these gleaming white towers. It's all beautiful and pristine. There's all these guards in their beautiful red and blue uniforms who look like much more smart than the ones in Lanka. Um, and they're, they're kind of impressed, but also there's something that feels a bit off about the place. I think Pratchett here is like really good at describing that offness, like just little lines, like when they're admiring the guards and Granny says, and there's so many of them too. Hmm. Um, or like talking about each of the towers as being like a perfect repository for a captive princess, you know, right. like he's really good at getting to that hint of violence um, about this city that could turn against you if it, if you weren't like the right kind of person in the story. And they come across that thief who they think is going to get his hand cut off, but is going to get his head cut off. Is uh, yeah, yeah. She's like, no, yeah. that'll stop him. <laughs> yeah. Well, he will never think about stealing something again. Does he get killed? Oh, I assume so. <laughs> I mean, so, Granny doesn't yeah. intervene as far as I can tell. Uh, but then at the start of the thing as well, there's like the... T- this is going back way back, but I think um, another punishment that Lilith meets out is like sending the toy maker into the dungeons that she's like cleaned up and is now just full of mirrors and i never really figured like i you can kind of guess what happens to him Mm. right that his sort of like soul kind of is fractured fractured and generating her power but it's sort of like never made exactly clear what her punishment is and i feel like yeah yeah, she's probably got a lot of different kinds of ways of dealing with people yeah because it's intimated that you know there's a innkeeper who's sent off for not being jolly and red-faced enough and then we meet his replacement uh later on um but but you he just it seems like he just gets exiled or or possibly executed but but yeah it's yeah you're right it's not clear and i was a bit confused about that too i was like is that not where she puts her mirrors aren't they just for her like because it's never really said what she uses them for aside from her own mirror magic. And that seems to be all about amplifying your personal power at a cost. Mm. So it wasn't clear how you would use someone else in that. So yeah, I don't know. It was a bit, was a bit uncertain, uh, but granny doesn't do anything about it. Cause she's distracted. Cause she realizes two of the people watching the execution are not people at all. Yeah. They're creepy sisters and they are creepy. Like I love how creepy they are in this book. They've done very well because, yeah, we all know what the Cinderella sisters are like as well because it's like no matter which one you've read or what movie you've seen, they're always bad in a different way. And it's just this is an entirely new take on them that I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Like they're really sinister. They're like the gentlemen in they that don't, Buffy episode. Because they don't talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like some kind of AI almost. Like oh, they yeah. just, they're relentless. They're the Terminators. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they just pop up like silently. But also, like, uh, I felt it's interesting how he sort of doesn't say explicitly what they are, just like he doesn't say explicitly what the duck is either. Um, we should say we're saying the duck because we're pretty sure that's how everyone says yeah. it, but it yeah. is spelled D-U-C, so possibly it's supposed to be pronounced Duke. I'm not really sure. But they make, like, jokes about, like, oh, duck, but he's a, like, yeah. Like, yeah so I, that sort of fed into my pronunciation of it as duck. 
Yeah, but it sort of it made me wonder like whether I was misremembering the book because they kept talking about the duck and I was like the duck and it's like oh he's the prince the duck is the prince but he's he's a frog right he is a frog right and I was <laughs> like he's a frog and again like with the sisters it's intimated that he, she's turned them you know into people from something else and I'm like this makes right I'm mm. remembering this right like it seems very clear that that's what he's telegraphing but then I was like kind of half expecting he was going to turn that and do something else but then it was much more satisfying when no that's what that's what was going on because i thought i first thought it was mice because i'd conflated what they were being yeah. fed with what they were mm. um but then i think snakes was better can i just quickly say how much of a shit i did not give about ella at any point in this story i was like you can marry yeah. them i don't care about you She's whatever in it. again you know the stakes were not really set that high for her i mean she seems obviously she doesn't want to marry the duck and she's not keen on it but we don't really know her or what her story is but that's very much like the Cinderella fairy tale itself. Like the center, the central character is sort of not really that important and very rarely has the interesting psychology. Yeah. And so the Disney Sleeping Beauty, like you don't really get any idea of her personality. Yeah. But at yeah. least, you know, Cinderella is the main character in her own story. Whereas here, Ember's like... Emberella. Yeah. <laughs> Something you put up in the rain. Yeah. I did like that, that they both came up with that separately. Yep. But yeah, yeah, that was cool. But but yeah, she's not the main character in this book by a long shot. So she's like very minor character in the the larger story of the book. And as they point out when they discover that the duke is you know a frog turned into a prince, there's two stories going on there. They've been sort of smashed together. Mm. Um, but you know that but that's not. It's also not quite right. Like that's not how the story goes. Like the prince gets turned into a frog and then gets turned back. Like that story doesn't really match up. And there's threads of these different stories, but she's really just sort of cobbling something together from all bits of story to make a new story that goes the way she wants. Well, that's how I read it. anyway. Mm. And I think it's also just like every little bit of the story that kind of um, follows a narrative path or narrative expectation feeds mm. into her power. Yeah. Right. Like, so for her, it makes sense to kind of like put as many stories together as possible because it like creates that hub of storytelling power that is genuine hmm. um, yeah but so is this the part where nanny's also wandering around the city and she meets mrs pleasant mm. yeah who is and there's like this great description of the food of genua which oh, i was uh, really into yeah. because we've had like all of this you know you know what was it um crap Suzettes and all of like these horrible uh nanny and granny just like going oh what is this do you have a pickle or do you have like some relish and this section we get like a really great description of the culinary cuisine of Genua almost like an Anthony Bourdain style no reservations <laughs> tour yeah like yeah. they drag everything up out of the river that they can get and they don't like you know bother with meat from anything with four legs that's you know not interesting at all they eat lobsters and crawfish and bivalves I think nanny yeah <laughs> taste and I feel like it's very apt that nanny's the one who's like wandering through the city um and Mrs. Pleasant's guiding her and that that's how she gets to know the city itself, because that feels like something Nanny would do, that she would get to know a place by, like, just eating everything in it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the food also gives us a really good idea of, like, the occupying force that Lilith is, because they have a culture beforehand. Like, they had a baron, he wasn't nice, but they had their own sort of functioning society with their own food. When Lilith is there imposing her fairy tale ideas on it, even the food's different, and she points out that it's just, like, it's not creative. She just, like, puts the thing on a spit, sends it out in a feast, and, like, it's 
that's not what they eat in the kitchen. But that I thought was an interesting way of showing, yeah. like, on, a, on the level of the people who live there, what's happened as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the descriptions of, of Mrs. Pleasant's cooking powers as well. Um, when she's talking about that difference, because she's like, oh, there's only so much you can do with big lumps of meat. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Uh, but then she's talking about she's got some fish heads in a bowl that was technically rubbish, but she was going to do something to them that would have made like Anthony Bourdain want to have second helpings. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, yeah. So that's because basically Genua is New Orleans. Mm. Like mm. it's, it's, it's drawing on a mash of other things, but that's basically what it is. Uh, with this weird magical kingdom imposed in the middle of it, which at times, and it's never quite described in those terms, but it feels a little bit like Disneyland. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's got that kind of, it's certainly the kind of place that would be in a traditional Disney film. And it's yeah. a good juxtaposition of like the gleaming white towers and then like that sort of rambunctious chaos of the swamp and of like the kind of cuisine, the New Orleans sort of culture mm. that he's drawing from. Um, yeah. yeah. And the fact that the swamp is right next door to the city as well. Um, like the, the, when they go to visit Mrs. Goggle, it's it's right there. Like, so there's gleaming towers, there's slum city, and then there's, or regular city, and then there's swamp. And yeah. it's all right next to each other. It's all mashed up together. But that's where Mrs. Goggle is. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Goggle is, yeah. Uh, Mrs. Google. Mrs. Google. Google. <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, this is uh, people in January probably when they have a problem and they need to know the answer, they just go and goggle, goggle it. it. Goggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terry's precognition right, right there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it switched on very well. He did. He did. Um, but yeah, it, that that's that meeting where she, uh, Nanny and Mrs. Goggle are really like talking about the stereotypes of each other's practice. Uh, which is, yeah, really delightful. I really enjoyed that. And then Granny shows up because she's um, spotted Grebo outside, hasn't she as well? Yeah. And, and meanwhile, Magrat is off meeting Ella. So they're yeah. all sort of getting their things happening. And then Nanny and Granny go off to the swamp, is it? Uh, well, Magrat is in the house with Ember and um, they're wondering where she's got to. And the sisters arrive home silently and it's very menacing and creepy and they're going to get her. Although it's not quite clear what they're going to do with her, whether they eat her or something. <laughs> but clearly they mean no good. And Nanny and Granny show up to save her because they've figured out where she's gone and, and what to do about it. Um, and I quite like that because there's a couple of little bits of this book that reminded me of Doctor Who. There's a bit where they're going to escape from the sisters where Granny says, when I say run, you know, and it's such a traditional Doctor Who line to say, like, he's always going, when I say run, run, you know, and he's getting ready to do a distraction. And she just throws something up in the air and the Snake Sisters, like, watch it. And they take that opportunity to scarper. The other Doctor Who reference is when Grebo selects the cat mask for the ball and says, always wanted to be ginger. Echoing the feelings of the 10th Doctor, who, soon after regeneration, comments... Oh, I wanted to be Ginger. I've never been Ginger. The Doctor Who episode premiered 15 years after the novel was published, leading us to speculate that Terry's descriptions of old Mother Dismas's mind being unanchored in time were written from first-hand experience. Which is when they, they kind of figure out, okay, we've got to disrupt this story. We've got to disrupt it really seriously. What, what can we do to mess this story up? And they kind of go their three separate ways to do their three separate parts of that. Just before that as well, when they meet Mrs. Google, Goggle, Go Go Google, 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 um, out in the swamp, like we also meet the 
Baron, right? Oh, yeah, we do. Yes. He's at that point called Saturday and he's a zombie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's – and it's great because Granny sort of like – very tentatively kind of accepts him and she's very polite and stops him from going out to the alligator who swallowed her hat. <laughs> it's like, oh no. Um, and she has a replacement hat though. She does. Yes. A very <laughs> beautiful one. Um, this is Google's best hat. <laughs> it's also the part where the revelation happens that we've all sort of guessed by this point, usually, um, that, uh, Lilith is granny's oh, yeah. sister. Mm. Because, yeah, Mrs. Gurgle's like, well, she knows who she is. And Granny's like, yeah, she's my sister. And it's great because she gets so personal about it. Like she gets really angry Mm. and we don't really see Granny as like this kind of, you know, very human, very vulnerable sort of person. And this is also, I think, I guess one of the first times where we see more of her backstory which kind of, you know, leads my imagination to all sorts of different places. Like, what were their bedrooms like, you know? <laughs> Bunk beds? Yeah this, yeah. this is something where she says it's her sister, but I was, because you'd never hear about her sister before or after this book, like it just doesn't become a thing. I was kind of, in the back of my head, I was like, have I totally forgotten where there's some revelation where it turns out she's not a real sister but when Granny Weatherwax was a young girl, she tried using mirror magic and accidentally split herself huh. into two, one of whom was good and one of whom was – well, they were both the same, but because oh. now there was two of them, one of them had to be a good one. And I was like, is that what's going to happen? Is that is that why Nanny's never heard about this? Is that what's going to – and then it doesn't happen. Like, it's just – no, she's actually just her sister. But That'd I thought, be great. Well, yeah. I kind of – and I think I was kind of going along that line because I'm like, well, otherwise, why do they look so much the same that everyone can confuse one for the other? When, you know, most of the time, brothers and sisters don't look that much like each other. They have a family resemblance, but you don't go, oh, you're your sister. Like, that doesn't happen that much. Because they would say twin if they were twins. Mm. Yeah, because they're not twins. And it, you never really find out which one's older either, I don't think. Although it's sort of insinuated maybe that Lily is meant to be the slightly older one. That looks younger because she hasn't got all the concern that people who are worried with good are. Yeah. 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 Being good makes you look old. Yeah. <laughs> Beauty tip from yeah. Jerry Pratchett. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that maybe that was where it was going to go. It's still a cool idea that she's got this sister that we don't know about who, but again, we never really get to know her that well. I enjoyed this book a lot, but I found it a bit of a disappointment in comparison to the other witches' books in some ways. Like the central three characters are great, but the plot of the book, I just never felt like the the stakes got high enough and the threat was really there. Like it was, it was great that there's this really personal connection with the villain, but it was never like parts of the villain's plot and parts of the villain's plan were really evil, but I didn't really know the people that they were affecting. So I didn't care as much like, like, you know, Ember, I'm like, I don't know who you are. Yeah. And it's said in a totally new city as well that, you know, Mm. we only really get to in the second half of the book. So I can see how like that would, like like drop the stakes because it's like well do we really care if genua kind of you know comes under the thrall of lilith for all eternity like we don't really hear much more about it Mm. after this but i think it's like the book is very much granny's book right yeah as most of the witches books are yeah um but it's kind of yeah like the stakes are basically her personal ones and because of that we don't really get um that 
like it doesn't really climax until really the very very end like that's when the emotional mm. kind of punch of the story comes in i think yeah and usually the trick for that is uh you know like if someone's if the world's going to end you don't really care because that's too big a stakes so you put like somebody's you know best friend or their cat or you know their partner on the world that's going to end and they have to save them from the end of the world. That's that's usually how you get those emotional stakes from a more personal thing. And that does work here, but I also I feel like it comes in really late because we don't fully understand the relationship between the sisters, between um, Esme and Lily, until that final confrontation where mm. she says those things. Like we know that Nat- Granny is angry, but we've never met this sister of hers. We don't know why she's so cross about her. Um, it, it's and I, I felt like that could have used some more building up. I'm being uncharacteristically critical of the book, but I think I'm, I really did dig it. There was just something about it that felt missing to me. And it was that sort of real connection to why do I care about this so much apart from just that granny cares about it. And I wasn't sure why. See, I liked it as a book purely of putting characters I like in situations that were interesting. Mm. But in terms of having an overarching storyline that I was deeply invested in, I feel the same way that it, I could have taken it or left it if Genua just sort of chugged along being in this thrall. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm happy to have read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I dug it and it's got some great stuff. And I really enjoy the way that they decide to disrupt the story of Ember's going to the ball and meeting the prince um, because they really kind of use all of their strengths to get it done. You know, Nanny shows up at, at the coach house. Oh, so we haven't even mentioned it's basic. It's Mardi Gras night. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's right. fat, fat lunchtime, <laughs> uh, as Granny puts it. And uh, you know, it's the it's um, Samiri Nui Mort. It's the it's a big celebration, uh, and everybody does their thing. It's been outlawed in the middle of the city, which is why the ball and meeting the prince is happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Presumably, so that people will start remembering that as the thing that happens this time of year instead of the Mardi Gras. But um, the coachmen are pretty annoyed because they have to work. So she turns up with some rum. It's like, hmm, would you like a drink? Like, what a nice old lady. Which <laughs> is great. She gets this will not relation. end badly at all. No. It ends so badly for the coachman in a, like it's irreversible way. Oh, yeah, Cause, that's awful. Because yeah. actually we get to like the coachman. Like he puts in like all this detail about their lunches and one's a newlywed and they rib them about things and Nanny shows up and gets them drunk. You're like, that's all really nice. But then in a throwaway line later, it turns out that when – when Lilith, like, so basically what's happened is they've sabotaged it. They've destroyed the dress. Like they've, the yeah, coachmen have gotten Magrets drunk. They cut it up into little bits. They got the coachman drunk. Yeah. And then they go off to enjoy a fat lunch because they're like, oh, well, it's done. They can't go to the ball without all of this stuff. Lilith just like gleefully reverses all of it. She turns mice into coachmen. She turns the coachmen into cockroaches, which would have been bad enough. But then she stomps on the cockroaches. Oh, so rough. It's, yeah. it's a deeply upsetting it's, book in some ways. Really yeah. Simple. And that I think that's where I really was like, oh, she's bad. Yeah. Like, she's evil. And up until that point, I'm like, is she misguided? Is she, she really believes she's the good one? And at that point, I'm like, no, she doesn't really believe she's the good one. She's trying to make herself into the good one because, like, no one who thought really believed that they were doing the right thing would, like, turn people into beetles and squash them. Like oh, this. but you could convince yourself. You're like, oh, they're going against the greater good and I'm doing the right thing by killing the people who are threatening the story, which is the most important thing. Like in a warped way, you could still think you were good and do that because you're doing it in the name of the thing that is most important. But she could also just let them run away. Yeah. Like I think that's one of the things where she's kind of like, like sometimes I wonder if maybe Lilith just like does whatever she wants, mm. right? Like that's mm. kind of what 
um, Granny says towards the end as well that she's always just done whatever she wants. So it's like the mood took her at that point to like squash the bugs. Mm. Um, and she doesn't, she just doesn't think about what that means to like the people that she's just turned into those bugs. Yeah. And she's also, you know, she's that evil mirror of Granny Weatherwax because Granny Weatherwax got annoyed with Mr. Wilkins and made him think he was a frog. Mm. She needed to get revenge because he said something that she didn't like. These coachmen disappointed Lily, but she doesn't just make them think they're beetles. She turns them physically into beetles and, and then squashes them. And it's like, well, okay, so you both have the same instinct, but one of you takes it way too far. Yeah. And the other one is a bit restrained. Um, mm. And there's a repeated idea in the book that there's not that much difference between the two of them, except that Granny Weatherwax decides to do what's really right, whereas Lilith does what she wants to be right or wants to think is right that she gets something out of. I have no doubt that she is evil. Like she definitely is. I'm just saying that I can see her twisting logic to still believe that she's good because with the Beatles, for example, mm. um, great band, um, she could, <laughs> Not <laughs> she, <squash. laughs> she turns <laughs> coachman into Beatles. Um, she goes, okay, that's the coachman dealt with. Now there's no longer coachman. Now there's Beatles. I'm killing Beatles, not the coachman. Like right. compartmentalizing yeah, everything. Right. Otherwise she could have just directly killed the coachman. Yeah. So I think right, she yeah. breaks things down into small palatable bits that her conscience can accept as her still being good. This is now your place in the world. You are now a beetle. Beetles are there to be squashed. Kind yeah. Of thing. Uh, okay. So I think she can still convince herself she's good by compartmentalizing her behavior. Sure. Okay. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned, that one of the other ways they sabotage the um, story is they turn the coach into a pumpkin, <laughs> which is all Margaret's been able to do with the magic wand <laughs> since she got it. I mean, she she used it in the dwarf mine. She accidentally used it on the boat. Um, and now she's used it for a useful purpose <laughs> um, by doing the reverse of what the story normally uh, requires. So, um, you know, and, and they turn the dress in, you know, she, with a knife, she turns the dress into a, just a bunch of rags, which is, again, like the opposite of the normal story. But and she ups- it upsets her because it's her dream dress and all of that kind of thing. She really does want to go to the ball as a person. But yeah. yeah. But the thing that I found really interesting is that, you know, Lilith undoes that really easily by going, oh, it's mm. really hard to change the shape of living things, but it's pretty easy if they remember being something else. So she just turns the pumpkin back into. Uh, or non-sapient things, um, you know, she says it's quite hard because you to change sapient things, you just have to change their mind about what they think they are. And then you, if you give it a nudge, their bodies will follow. But non-sapient things are really hard unless they have some sort of memory of being something else. I'm like, well, then how come it's so easy to turn the coach into a pumpkin and all this other stuff into pumpkins <laughs> in the first place? Um, and there's kind of a little bit of an illusion later on that wand magic is special magic and it's powerful. But... Otherwise, it says it's impossible to change the shape of a thing without, like, using sorcery. And I, I just thought, I think you're overrating this, Pratchett. Like, it happens quite a lot in your books. <laughs> um, and it is mostly people because he talks about the, you know, morphogenetic field and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was a weird kind of uh, side note. But I did enjoy the fact that when she's getting ready to do it, she adjusts the rings on her wand because she knows how to do it. Like, she's changing the settings. Um, and it makes a sound like a pump action shotgun. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay, this is getting serious. This wand is going to do some real mischief. I like that a lot. Um, but the, once that's all, the sabotage is undone, the witches sort of start to suspect maybe their plan has, it was too easy. So they mm. jump back into action. And um, they're, I just love that the main part of their plan is to turn Grebo 
into a dude. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it's yeah, kind like of- this is how to sabotage a you know a coach that's in motion. We'll just turn the cat into a man. Well, Put the cat do, among the pigeons. They do like, kind yeah. of justify it because like the, the the coach goes past and um they. Granny Weather, it's like, I could make the wheels fall off, which we've seen her do previously in Weird Sisters. Yeah. Like, no, you can't do that because Ember's in there. You might hurt her. Uh, and they're like, can you get into the minds of the horses? And she's like, well, normally I could, but those are not horses. They're rats. <laughs> and then Nanny's like, well, I know someone who could get into the minds of rats. And so they turn <laughs> Grimo into a dude. He's like, you can handle the horses because you can fight them because they're rats, uh, which is a very tenuous link to the plan, but it's it, so good. It does give us Grebo as a pirate. Uh, and it's a just, sexy pirate. I'm so glad that he wasn't like the same character he is as a cat though. Cause he's just real. Not good. He's uh, yeah. Well, he's, he's along similar lines, but he's like, he's like that Mills and Boone version of a pirate where like, yes, there'll be bodice ripping, but everyone's really into it. Yeah. So it's yeah. okay. It's all consensual. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that it's, <laughs> he stops the coach and he, does he kill anyone? I don't think he kills anybody. He just drags away a coachman and then, like, we fade to black, yeah. which is its yeah. own version of a Mills and Boone story, I guess. <laughs> and he does something uh, and Granny Nanny throws a boot at him. Oh, that's right, because he's going to, yeah, he's going to do something with, um, oh, with he opens the cage yeah. door and it sees Ember and, yeah, she throws a boot at him. It's like, no. Because <laughs> yeah, he's like, want. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. like, well, tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do we think Grebo would ever star in like a Fifty Shades of Grey kind of story? I felt like, cause I remember reading like something where apparently like lots of female fans expressed their like <laughs> approval for this particular twist and him being turned into a cat. And also he gets described as like a leather. Like what was it? He, you know, oh, he's a leather-clad corsair. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. Rippling yeah, yeah, muscles yeah, yeah. in a leather-clad corsair, and oh, yeah. like some greasy sexuality. And it was just like I could see him like starting, starring in his own franchise, yeah, where instead of like doing bondage, it's just like batting, like <laughs> a large just, just playing ball. with like a fish on a stick or yeah. something. <laughs> oh, he's got a giant like cat mate. You know those ones that they scratch for like human size. <laughs> 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 this would be an amazing movie. <laughs> oh, this is getting weird now. Uh, but, but I know I, what you mean. <laughs> uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, yeah, the excuse for making him was a bit slim, but he's so much fun. Yes. As, as a, you know, I mean, look, and cats in human form universally seem to work pretty well. Angelo Weber made a made a name for himself out of it. Well, it's true. And this, <laughs> this book is coming out a couple of years after Red Dwarf started on TV. Oh, right. Um, and I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, uh, Grebo is not nearly as vain as the cat in Red Dwarf, but there's a lot of other similarities between the two of them, although the the cat does not like fighting nearly as much as Grebo no. does. But this is a cat temperament, like, because... Because Grebo is an alpha cat. Like, he is the one who beats up all the other cats. Yeah, he's a whereas, tomcat. He's a big tomcat. Whereas cat from um, Red Dwarf is an indoor pampered cat. A sushi cat. It's the <laughs> kind of cats that only eat sushi. Yeah. 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 And get photographed as sushi. Like, have you seen that series of pictures? No, of- I haven't. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll link to that in the yeah. show notes. It's, it's some good stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's weird, but oddly satisfying. <laughs> um so yeah, so they they um, they need another plan now because if Lilith finds out this is not going to plan, well, she can just you know do something about it. Um, so they send Ella to the swamp, and then they need someone to go to the ball in her place. Mm, funny, they had a witch who was sort of the same size as her, and roughly the same age. Yeah. Mm. Oh, Magret's not happy about it. Mm. And she's but she's she's not the same age as Ember though, because Ember's like eighteen or something. But Magret's like 
But know. more than granny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, much more. Oh, no, more, so. more than nanny. I yeah. think nanny was the one who was like, yeah, I'll do it. That's fine. She's like, yeah. I fit the shoes and everything. It'd be great. I think that, <laughs> that was part of her convincing Margaret to do it. And then she does that thing where she looks over Margaret's shoulder at granny and mouths like she hasn't got any confidence. And then that's when she says, oh, I'll do it. And then she's like, oh, no, uh, okay, yeah, uh, you do it. And then um, granny's like, Margaret Garlic, you look at me. And you're not quite sure what she's going to do. But then Margaret is really transformed. It's kind of, it's full on. And I don't think they ever say it explicitly, but it seems pretty clear that she's instilled her own confidence yeah. into Margaret. I get where you're coming from with um, maybe Nanny was using it as a way to, to convince her to go, but I also think she was genuinely like, oh, no, I'll go. Because in, cause in, <laughs> oh, totally. in, in Nanny's head, she's still the same, like, 18-year-old who would go into a bar and all of the men would just fawn over her. Because that is still kind of what happens to her in Lanka. She's just got, like, adoring fans of family now. So which I think is kind of great. Like, she just, her confidence is the same no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so they send, um, they send Margaret to the ball dressed up as Umbrella with the mask on and with Granny's confidence installed. Grebo drives her up there. Uh, meanwhile, Nanny and Granny take their booms up to, brooms up to the top of the castle and discover the Duke's well, the duck's bedroom. <laughs> His boudoir. Oh, it's creepy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And when they're looking around, they find the, the cover over the like hole in the ground. And Nanny's like, oh, I seem to remember another story where the bride was told not to look in a particular room. And you're like, oh, yeah. Which is the story of Bluebeard's bride. Oh, um, I thought it was Beauty and the Beast. Oh, no, it's Bluebeard's Bride. Huh. And it's like, it's not one that's often retold these days because it's frankly just a horror story <laughs> dressed up as a fairy tale. But it's it's pretty, yeah. Pretty yeah. extreme. You know, Rooms full of parts and things. Oh. Previous brides. Yeah. It's like a slasher oh. film. <laughs> it is, yeah. And so Bluebeard's actually kind of like Beauty and the Beast, right? Because mm. Beauty and Beast is like, you get married to a horrible bridegroom, but he turns out okay. And Bluebeard's like the opposite, where it's, mm. you might get married to, you know, we might arrange you to get married to this guy and you might die. So it's creepy as, but anyway, they lift up the cover over the hole in the floor and it's not full of parts. Thankfully, there's a pond down there and the room is weirdly full of flies because he is, he's a frog. He's a frog. He's still a frog on the inside, even though now he can talk. And I like the way that, uh, uh, Lilith does mention that he's quite a smart frog. <laughs> yeah. She She's him. like, she picked the smartest frog in the pond. <laughs> like, still a frog. Like, you know. How does she tell that he's a smart frog? Like, is it just like seeing... The IQ test. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 I guess Psychometric can... testing. <laughs> just gave him the Myers-Briggs. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess she looked into his mind in the same way that Granny knows mm. how to do when she's borrowing and looking into the minds of animals. Well, maybe she's just really good at telling riveting stories. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Oh, forget about it. Oh. <laughs> also, her name's Lily. Lily pads, frogs. Maybe she loves him. I always thought, is, <laughs> is her name short for Lilith or is it is her name actually Lily? I was a bit confused I about think, that. I think, I think it's, it's an affectation. Lily. Yeah, she's called herself something French and fancy. Oh, yeah, because oh, the name that she chooses is like the surname is basically a French transliteration of Weatherwax. Mm. Yeah. Ah. So that makes sense. So it's just Lilith is like a fancy French version of Lily. That's not a very good way to hide yourself, though. Like, I feel like if you're trying to, like, it's kind of like a Remus Lupin sort of situation. It's like, I'm technically a Weatherwax 
just come find me. Yeah. But maybe she's doing like the Hyson's bouquet thing where it's like her name but fancied up. So she's not trying to hide. She's just trying to be better. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. Granny hasn't gone looking for her in like 60 years. Like assuming that Granny's about 80 or in her 70s mm. and that Lily left when she was like about 18, I think is the. Or younger, she's a teenager. Teenager. Yeah, she got thrown younger. out at 13. Yeah, so it's been like 60 years yeah. and she's never gone looking for her um, and never mentioned her and never thought about her in all that. Well, we don't know if she's thought about her, but never interacted with her in all that time. So she's presumably not worried about people coming looking for her. Mm. Yeah, I think she's fancying it up. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I guess so. Because her whole thing is the fantasy, the story appearing as different as to what you are. So. Yeah, and she wants to be like the kind of fairy godmother with lots of lace and sparkles and showers of silver and stardust. Yeah. Mm. I just remembered that Granny technically must be younger than Lily now because of the time travel stuff that happens in Weird Sisters where they scoot like oh. all of Lanka like 15 years into the future. But still looks older because evil makes yeah. you young. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so that's that's weird, isn't it? Um, sorry, I just thought of that. Yes, um, that is interesting. It's it's one of those things where it's such a great plot point in the book that it's in. Yeah. But then if you start to think about how it must affect the things that happen in other books, you're like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Anyway, we're at the ball. Margaret's in there dressed as Ember's, um, being confident, dancing with all these, you know, fancy men. Um, Nanny and Granny have entered through the roof. They've found that the duke or the duck is a frog. Uh, and also the prince. There's a great line where he goes, the prince is a duck there's a frog. <laughs> uh, but then they decide they've got to go down to the ball so they can keep an eye on things. So they do that classic move uh, in any kind of infiltration film where they knock a few people out and take their clothes. Yeah. Um, in this case, through hypnosis. Um, and I have to admit, when I was imagining this, I could not get the image of uh, Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French from Let Them Eat Cake out of my head. And I'm like, now I really want to see Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French play Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax. Oh that would God, be amazing. Would be, I'm like, I don't know if they're quite old enough yet. I think maybe we need another 10 years. but Just enough time to get the funding together. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that would be amazing. I would love to see that. I don't know who you get to play Magrat. It'd be like um that Mamma Mia special they do. They could get Sienna Miller or something, oh, just mm. like some random blonde starlet. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The it girl of the moment. Or they could get Jane Horrocks, who is in Absolutely Fabulous, who plays the voice of Margaret in the Weird Sisters cartoon. Oh. She could possibly do it. Although she might be older now than we would think Margaret being. I don't know. Uh, I um kept seeing Grebo as Kevin Smith from as Aries from Xena. Do you oh. remember that? Yeah, like oh, wow. the yeah. full leather, the like was... weird. Yeah, because he kept trying to get her to marry him, and yeah, yeah, yeah like just as sleazy. Mm. Oh. Yeah, dangerous sleazy. Danger. That's right. Yeah, totally. No, I I can see that. Yeah, but with claws and yeah, they'll have to be a teeth. Wolverine. Like they'll they'll have to be a special effects budget, obviously, mm. for this yeah. adaptation. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. That'd and doesn't one of the women that they've biffed and stolen the clothes of, Grebo comes across her? Or is it Cassinunda that comes across her? Well, Grebo comes across her first. Yes. Yeah. And then 
things don't go the normal way that he expects. And she like sort of goes, Ooh, meet me in the garden later. And he's like, that's not how it goes with cats. Uh, and then he does try to meet her in the garden later, but he's been turned back into a cat by that stage. Yeah. So he's just rubbing up against her legs and Cassinanda shows up and goes, hello, miss. <laughs> You're like, oh, Cassinanda. Cassinanda, the dwarf is trying to make the date. Yeah. Yeah. He's honorable. Yeah. yeah. I kind of like that he sulks off after it doesn't go quite well before, as in like when he's just met her, goes to the kitchen and gets fish heads in her oh, yeah, and a yeah. saucer of milk and tries to lick his ears but can't. Oh, poor old Gribo. I yeah. mean, look, he's also awful, but it was also great. Yeah. But he's... it's also awful. <laughs> he's, he's both. He's so he's both. a cat, yeah. Yeah, he's a cat. <laughs> he contains multitudes. But the ball, I mean, the ball sequence is, is there's so much going on there because the, the duck arrives and everyone's like, hey, it's the duck. And he's like, the crowd parts and he's, there's supposed to be that magical moment where he and Umbrella who's Magrat, meet and they're going to dance the night away until she runs off with the leaving a glass slipper behind. Although I quite like the way that they reveal that the glass slipper is not actually made of glass because that would like shatter and destroy your feet. Mm. But they've got t- millions of tiny little shards of mirror on mm. them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, they're, they're like disco ball slippers. <laughs> yeah, no, this is definitely. But also what is Lilith looking at? What do you mean? Because she looks at through the mirrors at things. Like you throughout the book, like she's looking from puddles and stuff, and now she's got these shoes covered in mirrors. It's like it's not it's not awesome. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, oh. Was, yeah, it was kind of that like that fable of the reverse floor thing, you know. Oh, yeah. Well I Just to take it to a terrible place. Yeah. I guess well she can look out of any shard, so maybe she's not looking out of the ones that reflect up. Words? I well, maybe it's like a kaleidoscope and it all just forms a nice pattern. Maybe it's just so she can find the shoe when she needs it. I don't know. Well, it's part of the story, so she probably doesn't need it. Yeah, well, she knows. Yeah, so she goes straight to the house. Well, she already, she already knows where the house is. And I quite like that, that like, they, they expose that, like, after they disrupt the story. I mean, the first thing that happens is they're like, oh, but Magret's not going to come around mm. um, out of this hypnotized state that she's in being all confident and dancing with everyone, including the duck, um, until midnight, until the clock strikes midnight. And Nanny makes this great point. Clocks don't strike midnight. They just strike 12. Like, we can make that happen early. Uh, and then accidentally dobs herself in. But by that time, she's met Cassinanda. <laughs> um, oh, and, and they've also had a bit of a dance. Like, they both get approached by dance partners. Um, and Nanny, Granny's like, oh, I'm going to have a dance. And Nanny's like, well, I'll have a dance as well. <laughs> and Granny, like... Learns to dance by looking in the guy's head and then steering too hard. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, he, you know, he didn't, t- he didn't try to lead for too long <laughs> before he let her do it. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, she then he goes off to change the clock with Cassandra's help and pushes it forward so that it strikes twelve. And Margaret wakes up and realizes she's holding hands with a dude who's. A frog clammy i like, taking his yeah. glasses off because there's that nice thing that you can't change somebody's eyes but they don't seem to apply that to the sisters because nobody looks at them and goes those are weird snaky eyes how come you're why have you got eyes like that no one says that to them i feel like they no one gets close enough to them to oh. be able to see <laughs> yeah, you don't want to look point. them in the eye yeah because they'll a, see you that's a good point um yeah, uh, and uh, and so she runs off, leaving one of the slippers behind. And just as like Lily's like, oh yeah, or Lily is like, oh great, we can to do the story. Um, Granny arrives and smashes it to a thousand pieces. And Nanny makes that um, she offers to, for her to try it on her. She's <laughs> like, it'll fit me. 
And they're like, no, it won't. And he's like, yeah, well, there'd be hundreds of people who have the same size feet <laughs> in the city. Like, the only the only way it would be like magical and amazing is if you knew which house to go to first. Uh, which I thought was, yeah, that was a really clever. interesting criticism mm. of the original story, but also, yeah, real clever, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really like that part where Nanny's just like the clocks don't strike midnight because I feel like that's very in keeping with the witch's pragmatism that they're like, no, that's not actually how the world works. Like they know the story and they know the kind of figurative things that happen and that's what like allows them to sort of see through it to kind of know which parts they can jiggle and make Mm. the story fall apart. Like, and that's what Granny does as well. Like she sees, like she reaches deep down into the story and sees that the the shoe is sort of like the totemic thing. That she can that disrupts it. I really, yeah. I just thought that that was cool witchery. And it's Nanny messing with time again, because like in Weird Sisters, it was like her family all strangling the cockerel yeah. so they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yeah, um, I quite like too that. Actually, is, I don't know if this, this is left dangling. Maybe I missed where it's not. But when they shatter the shoe, and it's made very clear that she has derailed the story. There's a mention, it's just a short paragraph of the story, like flapping about loose, looking for somewhere mm. to earth itself. And I don't know that that ever gets picked up. I mean, it's kind of a similar idea to what happens in moving pictures where when Hollywood is destroyed, all these sort of bits of Hollywood stories like earth themselves in different moments, like with um, Detritus and Ruby in the cafe um, and, you know, Gaspode and Laddie being rescued from under the building and all that kind of stuff. But in this one, it says that's happening, but it's not clear I don't remember that it actually is resolved what happens to the end of the story. Well, it's resolved because um, the sisters basically uh, snatch Magrat and bring her back into the ballroom and Lily takes the other shoe and she's like, you're so literal to Granny. She's like, you're so literal. Don't you remember that these things come in pairs? Mm, So she's she's got another one. That's what. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so while all that's going on at the ball, though, we've got Mrs. Goggle in the swamp doing her reverse voodoo. Instead of summoning a god or a lower to ride a human being, she's creating a god and letting, well, kind of a human being ride it because she's summoning this into this force, this godly force, into Saturday to give him the power to disrupt what's going on with the story. And this is why at the start of the story she's making this weird sort of scarecrow-like figure with the top hat and tail coat and the cane and the mirror and the mirror yeah that's right um and so um saturday goes off with this weird energy like crackling out of him Mm -hmm. to the ball and so the witches get thrown into the dungeon lily has them thrown in there and they're trying to figure out how to get out when mr saturday arrives with all of his supernatural force and he's like tears down the wall i think um, of the yeah, castle. Yeah, that's right. Rips the wall out so they can escape. Cassanon has been out there sort of like serenading. Yeah, <laughs> he's just like not really helping the situation that much. No, it's true. But it is one of those things. It's like, how are you looking in through the window? He's like, I always know where to get my hands on a stepladder. <laughs> uh, but there's also that great thing where Nanny's just automatically translating what he's saying and it's pretty much accurate. And you're like, oh, like we've been laughing at your nonsense language all the way through this book. But actually there's like two or three points where you realise she actually does understand these other languages somehow. Well, I mean, that's like well how enough. you acquire languages, right? Mm. Like you just keep making mistakes until eventually you get the confidence 
confidence to uh, know how to say things. And that's not an endorsement of how to talk to people in other countries. But she does, yeah, just throw herself in without shame or embarrassment and therefore she opens herself up to opportunities. Yeah, but they are... To learn. Yeah. One thing we haven't mentioned is that uh, Nanny's postcards that she's been writing home. Oh, yes. Which I love so much. I'm a huge fan of postcards. And I really appreciate that when she's writing the first one, there's a footnote that says she wrote lots of cards and sent them all, but they all arrived after she got back. I'm like, yeah, that's totally what happens. I got a confession with the whole like Baron showdown and things going a bit wonky and he's a bit too powerful and Mrs. Gogol was a, like wanting to go a different way. That kind of washed over me because like too much is happening at once. I've been used to the slow pace and I was kind of like, oh, well, bad stuff's happening, but it'll be fine. Yeah, it does. I mean, a bit like some of those earlier books when we were saying we felt the ending felt a bit rushed. Mm-hmm. There are elements of the ending of this book where there's, I mean, I think the final confrontation with Lily and Granny feels pretty good. I don't think that feels too rushed, but a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, he has to get like Mrs. Gurgle out of the way, essentially, of the narrative so that yeah. uh, Granny and Lily can have their confrontation. So it's sort of like, okay, well, she's obviously, you know, put a stake in Lily and wants to exact her revenge, Mrs. Gurgle. Mm. Um, so how do we get rid of her so that Granny can have that confrontation instead? And it's yeah. basically um, Granny and Mrs. Gurgle have to have like a witch showdown. Yeah. Um, Although it- I quite enjoyed the showdown between uh, Lily and Baron Saturday that happens before that because he's a zombie but he's now got the power of a god and she tries casting all this magic at him and that's, it just sort of bounces right, yeah. off him and then she like casts this big spell which sort of sucks all of the magic that's around out of the thing so Grebo who's fighting with guards at that stage turns back into a cat and the, still wins still wins because <laughs> now he's got twice as many sets of claws um, and uh, uh, the duck turns back into a frog who then the Baron just immediately steps on and squashes. Aww. There's a lot of that goes on in this yeah, book, isn't there? Animals. It's pretty rough. But Although he seems like, I mean, he wants to be the prince of the realm and rule and like he seems okay with all of the things that Lily's doing. So he seems like he's in on it. And Still you're, pretty rough. And you also know that someone's going to die significantly as well because death has been showing up like for about mm, half the, the ball, book. Yeah. Like when they were um, having drinks. Like ball, yeah. But earlier, like when they're having drinks and um, oh, Nanny passes over a drink and his death is having, he's like, thank you in his font. Oh, and- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she like sort of clocks who he is, but then goes back to what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the ball, he's like eating lobster. And it's like, oh, you've got really fancy taste, death. Like. Yeah. Go straight for the lobster. Nice. It's kind of like when you um, you have a job where you get invited to fancy things that aren't really your thing, but you get to go to them. <laughs> <laughs> He's stealing like tea bags to bring home. Which yeah. I imagine happens to death all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So Baron Saturday kills the duck, uh, mm. the frog is dead. Um, long live the frog. And then just they, they decide that, Embers is going to be the queen anyway. And that's when they kind of drop the thing where she's their daughter. And you're like, well, that came a bit out of... It's sort of hinted at a little bit earlier on. But you're like, look, I get that that's interesting and kind of that's your motivation. But also kind of, again, I didn't feel any weight to that when it turned up. Because they give, they'd said that Ella was his daughter earlier on. Right. And they'd said that Mrs. Gogol was his lover or his girlfriend or what, what not earlier. Have they said that? Oh, yeah. I missed those bits. I mean, I knew, I, I got the impression that that was what was going on. But they hadn't connected them together in that way. They weren't like, she's the mother of right. this. So. And I think like someone mentioned, Granny mentioned that part of why Lily wants Ella to marry the duck is so that the duck has a legitimate seat to power. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I agree. Like it's sort of dropped in and it doesn't really, again, it's more of a narrative kind of device. Yeah. I was like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Um, but Lily runs away back to her mirror chamber so she can summon more power or escape. And Mrs. Goggle's like, right, I'm going to get her. And that's when Granny and Mrs. Goggle have their showdown because Granny's like, no, you're not. You leave her to me. You've got what you wanted. And, and that's also where they sort of have that bit of discussion about is she good or is she bad? Like, is Mrs. Goggle, you know, where is she? And and they kind of give the idea that if, if Granny Weatherwax is like a, you know, for want of a better term, a white witch and, and Lily Weatherwax is like a, you know, a, a black witch, like a black magic practitioner, then... Mrs. Goggles somewhere in the shades of grey in between. Mm. Sort of, that's kind of how it's described in the book. Do we? Th- is that accurate? I don't know how we feel about that. I mean, I think that Granny sort of objected to the idea that she would be um, ruling in some way or even like influencing Ella's mm. rule as her mother. And mm. she's like, no, we witches don't do that. You know, witches don't rule because too much power can be abused really easily. And I think... That's why she's, but yeah, I do, I do remember that there is like a lot that's said about whether or not she's like, she's a shadowy sort of witch, which I don't feel like is really that kind of um, explored in the book at all, except that she mm. raises dead people. Like, but that I mean, seems pretty normal for her. Like, it yeah, was, like that was her not, boyfriend. So yeah. Whatever. You know, like yeah. it's not, I, I don't know, like maybe, maybe when we read it, it's sort of just like not as weird. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Anyway, they, the showdown, though, is great between the two of them, particularly the way that it's resolved, because they sort of, first of all, they just sort of, like, argue with each other, but then it's Granny Chow to, like, a magic off, basically, except she's not going to use magic. And she's like, oh, what, my voodoo against your headology? And she's like, yep. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, that's not going to go well for you, because look what I've got. And she's got a voodoo doll of Lily. She says, but, like, I could easily make it of you. Don't make me do it. And she's got, like, a little sliver of would and granny's like you do whatever you think is best and starts walking up the stairs mrs goggle starts stabbing it it's definitely having an effect granny's like going ah 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 and walking up but she keeps going until she sort of can't get too far and mrs goggle's threatening to stab the voodoo on the heart and kill her and that's when granny sort of plays her cards and turns around and then thrusts her arm into one of the torches on the stairwell and the voodoo dog catches a flame hmm. and mm. She's like, we ain't going to use any magic. She's like, she did it. She made you use your magic. And you're like, oh. And it's exactly the echo of the argument that Magrat and her had, had earlier when Magrat was talking about in the books. There's other people using magic, like walking on flames and not getting hurt. And then Granny's like, people can't walk on flames and not get injured. And so, yeah. 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 Oh, good yeah she just channels it into something else. It's not that. Yeah, because there's a whole thing about not using magic when you don't need to. So, yeah, it just sort of tied it up hers and Magrat's argument as well at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Uh, and then we get to the final confrontation of the book, the really big climax, which is uh, Granny and Lily confronting each other. Or, well, really, Granny confronting Lily because Lily's kind of running scared at that point because she's been defeated once already. Yeah. Um, and it's in the Chamber of Mirrors. And this, like, the argument that they have with each other, like, when Granny gets real angry and she says that great thing where it's like, you ran off and did whatever you wanted and that meant I had to be the good one. Yeah. <laughs> so resentful. It's so, so personal. It's not like a moral thing at all. She's just like, I didn't get to have the kind of fun that you did or, like, I didn't get to have the freedom that you did, right? Mm. Yeah, it's just that I was the one who had, like, had to stay. It's the prodigal son kind of thing, but mm. not quite. 
Mm. But yeah, had to be the one who's responsible at home, looking after things, doing the good things. Because I think in their previous confrontation, they had had these arguments about what being a witch is, right? Like, and Granny is very much like the here and the now and the real and, you know, you can only help people by skin is a phrase that gets repeated through the book about, like, actually helping people with your time and your effort and your energy. Yeah. Um, obviously, Lily is very much the opposite of that where it's just like I will use magic to just change everything around yeah. me into the way that I see it. Um, but this argument I feel like is more emotional because it is like just that resentment of the younger sibling to the oldest yeah. sibling. Just, yeah. yeah. And I look, I it, actually, you mentioned that the thing that Nanny says, you know, when she's talking to Margaret about how no, she does like heaps, like so what if she doesn't use magic, she does so much work and Margaret not getting it. I felt was like, I think that was something else in this book for me that there's always something about Margaret's attitude about using magic more and not getting that the practical side was just as important, if not more so. I, I never bought that from mm. her. Mm. I think that sort of put me off about... When I reread this, I really sympathised with Margaret. She's she's sort of like every mid-20s person who's having like a career crisis, you know? Mm. Like, what is this even about? Like, what is witching even about if I can't <laughs> like turn something into a frog, right? Yeah. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, but I do agree that she's... Her inherent practicality is kind of dumbed down here to mm. sort of further the plot a little. And that's always been a weird sort of um, clash in her, the way that she's been characterised because she does love all the sort of weird new agey trappings of, of modern witchcraft, but also she's super practical because the witch who taught her was a research witch. So when she makes like potions and like medicines, she's actually doing herbal medicine. Like she knows how all that stuff works. So she's also kind of a scientist. One of the things that she's frustrated by is that Nanny will just give them like some hot soup and tell them it's okay. And granny will just be like, I'll just sleep it off for like, you know, two weeks. And that oh, yeah. often that works just as well as yeah. her very well researched herbal remedies. Mm. And I think like she's trying to find a place to practice her witchcraft in a way that doesn't feel like it's in comparison with these witches. Like, I wonder if maybe when the witches get together, all of their insecurities get brought out more reflected because. and amplified as though in a mirror oh how <laughs> perfectly apt oh, what a good segue uh, <laughs> but like i think that's yeah that's what you're saying they sort of bring out the worst and the best but the worst yes. in each other mm. yeah and that's the thing as well that that's why they have to be away from the final conflict with lily as well because and nanny recognizes this they're her like achilles heel or mm. sorty and knee or something <laughs> but then they show um, up anyway sorty well, they and knee. Sorry, but then they run that. away well they they leave right <laughs> Yeah. Granny has her in her sights, basically, and then then the other witches are around. She's like, oh, well, I'll kill them. And so Granny sacrifices herself for her That's friends. why she jumps off the tower mm. on, with her broomstick in hand. Yeah, her, her crap broomstick that needs a run-up that they've very carefully told us a lot across the book. Yes. Well, because she's, she's still got all her mirror powers. Because she does all this magic that's more like wizard magic when she's fighting the Baron. And then when Nanny and Magret show up, she just throws them against the wall and is like, I'm going to get like a bit like Darth Vader, really. It's just the craft. Uh, yeah. And then that's what makes Granny throw herself off the edge. And then she comes back. Yeah. And she smashes one of the mirrors. Because she's on her broom. She's got her broom with her. Yeah. And, uh, and she pretends that she's lost. And it's that thing where right at the start before Desiderata dies, she says one of these weatherwaxes is going to have to learn how to lose. But of course, she's not giving in at all. 
because um, she manages to start her broom on the way down. And I love that when Magra and Nanny are sort of talking about it, and Nanny's like, how fast do you think you would go when you're falling? <laughs> Is it fast enough to start the broom? Um, yeah, and she comes back and... I don't know. It's, I thought it was quite cinematic. And I really liked how um, Magret and um, and Nanny are going down the stairs and coming up the stairs is death. And I'm like, oh no, what's happened? Yeah, yeah. He's probably just um, getting some more lobster before, before <laughs> he's needed a bit later on. Does death ever meet Grebo at any point? No, not in this book at least. But in any of the books? Because I would... Oh, yeah. I, do. I was wondering about that because, like, you know, he loves cats generally. Yeah. but Would he, he love Grebo? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you have to love all cats, even if you hate some of them. Mm. Uh, but that's, yeah, Granny has snuck back in, like flown in a broom. I'm not quite sure how she sneaks in on a broomstick, but she manages it somehow and smashes one of the mirrors and stands behind it. And uh, and just like yells at Lily, like, yeah. like it's a domestic fight and Lily's like, we have to find the other one. We have to smash the other one in the pair because what's happening is that cracks are reverberating all mm. around the infinite mirrorverse following the curve of light and it starts to come back um and as it reaches the mirror uh, the her reflection like reaches her reflection out reflection reaches out yeah yeah. yeah it's so creepy yeah and that's where death gets involved yes cuz yeah. esme uh, granny tries to like go after her Mm. Yeah, and, and that's like tries really to reach into the well. mirror. Yeah, and it's it's kind of you had to piece together a little bit. They don't explicitly tell you what happens, but it it becomes clear that she's tried to reach into the mirror to go after Lily, but has just succeeded in like cutting her arms up to ribbons. But then <laughs> her soul has like gone into the mirror, but her mm. body has stayed outside. Whereas Lily is also physically trapped inside the mirror world, um, the space between mirrors or however it's described there's a couple of really nice evocative descriptions of mirror magic early in the book that yeah. i really liked and death visits them both mm. and there's all these reflections everywhere and death says to lily you know you're here and she's like how long do i have to stay here oh she says no am, am i dead or alive and he's like well somewhere in between and he's like how long do i have to stay here and he said well until you figure out which one is the real one mm. and lily like looks around there's all these reflections she's like oh and then he says the same thing to Granny, and her response is one of the best things in the book. Granny asks, is this a trick question? Dad says, no. Granny looks down at herself. This one, she said. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Oh, what else yes, would she say? It's so else. good. Yeah, she's so good. Um, and then that's that's pretty much it. Like, there's literally yeah. four pages of the book left after that to wrap everything Happily up. Happily ever after. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, they're, they're flying home and they're trying to decide if they want to go see the elephant. Uh, yeah, and eventually they do, but they, they go home, but they go the long way so they can see the elephant. And just before that, the other thing that happens is Magrat throws away the wand. Mm. She throws it into the swamp. Just a part of me that's like loves museums and history is just like, why are you d- doing this to this artifact, throwing it into a swamp? Like someone will find it down the tracks. What happens to the little swand? I think it gets sucked with her into the mirror world. Mm. Yeah, I think she's still got it at the end. So maybe that's a symmetry thing. Like if one's gone, they have to both be not out of commission. That could be kind of like... Yeah, well, that makes sense. Because if there's only one and someone gets a hold of it, who can oppose them? Whereas if there's Mm. two, then at least like there's a chance that if someone's using one for evil, someone else can use the other one to counter them. So So it's a balance thing. Maybe that's why story-wise it has to go. Mm. 
It needs to be kept in yeah. a glass cabinet somewhere. Yeah, studied maybe like in a drawer at you know like a museum, and people can like get a fellowship and look at it through glass. A fellowship, you know, it's interesting you MRI say that because I was just thinking that the wand has yellow, like silver and gold rings on it, <laughs> and maybe that's what the frog-like creature with a birthday was after. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just like a certain other artifact, it is thrown into a river and Ooh. lost. For a time, mm. but surely it will make itself found when it wants to be. Maybe. Yeah. The Smeagles of Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, but that brings us pretty much to the end of the book. Um, are there any bits that we've missed out or any, any particular things that people wanted to read out? Any favorite bits? I just had an observation first off um, where they're talking about, I think, the circus. And Nanny says that they always promise an elephant and there never is one. And I'm always disappointed. And I wonder if that's because they're all busy being shepherded up for moving pictures. <laughs> yeah, there's none left anymore. And I, I liked in one of um, Nanny's postcards, she talked about how Magrat had taken ill and had a dire rear. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was quite good. That was very was yeah. apt. Um, Magrat's talking about how gra- uh, Granny did all of those things that she had during their trip. Scoffed as not real magic, like, you know, putting her hand in the fire. Um, and Nanny says, it's all according to the general and the specific, right? Um, it means when Esme uses words like everyone and no one, she doesn't include herself. Uh, yeah. hmm. um, Margaret says, you know, when you think about it, that's terrible. And Nanny says, that's witchcraft up at the sharp end. Right? And it's yeah. like, that's so, like, it's really interesting to me that, like, Granny occupies that really pointy end of witchcraft, mm. that one where it's just like it is about you and your own discipline and your own control, and that's why it's so important for her to, like, know what the real world is because she knows she's going to be put into those situations sometimes where she has to only rely on herself, like in the mirrorverse, right? Like, she has to know what is real and what really matters. Mm. I just feel like oh, that's why she's so epic. And great. She would do great in Inception. (laughs) (laughs) She would never. That would be so good. She wouldn't even need a spinning thing. She'd just like hit Leonardo DiCaprio over the head. Yeah. Just be like. That movie would have been five minutes if she was in it. Well, I think now is probably when we want to get onto our listener questions because we had a few sent into us via social media. Mm. What's the first one, Liz? So this one's question is from Jonas Larson, which says. Wishes Abroad reminded me of the Rincewind novels, a road trip consisting of a long series of comical scenes and parodies, in this case Red Riding Hood, Wizard of Oz and the like. Do you think the concept worked better here and why? It was as much a parody of kind of a European holiday as it was (laughs) of fantasy stories. And because it was fairy stories, it felt a bit different in tone. Um, And it was, we all knew what was going on. Like when they encounter those stories, that's part of the plot. Whereas in something like the color of magic, where they're going to sort of weird places like, like the, the temple of Belshamroth or, um, you know, the, the Wormberg or somewhere weird like that. Those are more pastiches or parodies of kinds of fantasy. And some of them quite specifically of particular fantasy stories. But those are things that unless you're well mired in that fantasy tradition, you won't know. And the parody or the things being like another story that you've read but not quite right is not part of the story. It's kind of the way the story is being told. So for Rincewind, like the Temple of Belshamroth is really just the Temple of Belshamroth and the Wormberg is like a bunch of people who have dragons and it's weird and creepy. And by weird, Ben means W-E-I-R-D, not W-Y-R-D. 
Yeah, as you said, it's everyone's kind of heard of fairy tales, so it's a very easy entry point into this particular kind of story. And as I mentioned before, I just feel like the dynamic between the witches makes it really fun to read. Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't like the Rincewind books, but that was only because I think I read it at that particular time and it didn't really resonate with me. Mm. Well, the tone is very different as well. The tone, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that you just made me think of is that the witches are protagonists and they're on their way somewhere for a purpose, whereas Mm. particularly in the first couple of Rincewind books, they're just kind of wandering. Um, And I think that's the, the bit that most reminds me of a Rincewind book is probably the sort of weird Dracula section in this book where they're kind of really oblivious to what's going on. That's that's interesting that, yeah, you're talking about them having being a protagonist because um, this book does feel kind of like a midpoint between some of Pratchett's earlier parodies and his later books, right, where he has a very clear, I think, moral message. I think it's, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that the moral message of this particular book was hammered home <laughs> quite strongly. Yeah, and I think he was still kind of working it out, like getting that balance right between a really captivating story and particular sort of message that he wanted to impart and also parody. Like I think in this one maybe, yeah, it's just a bit unbalanced. There's a lot of competing goals for the, yeah. for the book, yeah. For a very slim book as well. Yeah. And this one's from Ilbion with the blending of folklore. Um, so Baron Samedi, um, Baba Yaga and Cinderella, Pratchett shows an appreciation for all culture stories. What do you think he wanted to show by casting these together? I think partly it's to show that there's all kinds of stuff happening on the disc world, you know, and, and also because by creating this fantasy world where all those things can coexist, he can just sort of draw from that vast palette of all human stories and mash them together in new and interesting ways. There are probably story elements in there that I am missing because I do like, you know, I grew up in kind of a Western fairy tale tradition. So I imagine that, yeah, he's, he's always done so much research into his books that there's probably references there that I'm not getting. I think it also comments on, I guess, the universality of these sorts of stories. Like there's some variation of a Cinderella story in a lot of different cultures. Right. So Mm. yeah, I think, that's why he mishmashed everything to kind of not make it feel too specific to one place. And I agree with the idea about it being universality of stories because um, it's the idea here is that stories are happening all the time. They have their own sort of reality. The idea of drawing from all kinds of different stories, the fact that we all have them shows this idea that there's something else maybe going on around the edges. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not saying he literally is saying that, but it ties in well with the themes of the book to not have them all from one place. Mm. Um, so we've got one from Murphy Peoples, which is, can you answer the question of the ages? Which is better, cats or dogs? Specifically, are you Team Grebo or Team Gaspode? Although I think I'm Team Ook, to be honest. All right. Uh, well, look, that's tempting, but I feel like Team Ook is cheating because he's a person, really. Mm. Uh, I'm Team Errol because if you're going to pick a pet from the Discworld, I'm not going to pick a dog or a cat. I'm going to pick a dragon. <laughs> like, I would love to have a pet swap dragon, but... um. Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't choose between Grebo and Gaspode, except I can. It'd probably be Gaspode or Grebo. No, they're both great. I can't. I can't do it. I'm Team Errol. Look, my instinct, my gut instinct says Team Gaspode, only because I love. I am a cat person, but Grebo is a special kind of cat. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. mean. He's really mean. Yeah, I feel like I feel like he would like traumatize small children into having like fears of cats, like a serious cat phobia you know in the village so yeah i just i love grebo but only from a distance 
Yes. What if, what if Grebe is a person? No, um, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. But it's just interesting because neither Grebo nor Gaspard are by their temperament pets. Like they're not mm, really, because mm. like we have Gaspard running away every time he gets given a nice home, which he claims what he always wants, but he prefers to sort of live on the streets. And Grebo sort of, I think, reluctantly, like he knows he's got a good thing going yeah. with Nanny Og, who sees him as this like fluffy kitten. And so they have this kind of weird friendship. But yeah. neither of them are really pets, so like I don't. It's tricky. Yeah, yeah. I can't really pick one. Okay, but uh, yeah. Sorry, Murphy. We can't answer the question of the ages. <laughs> but I mean, slides the question of the ages. Yeah. But who would I be friends with out of the two of them? Gaspode, definitely. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. 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 Look, and I think I do tend towards Gaspode for the same reasons that you give. Like Grebo is not someone who you have as a friend or as a friendly cat. Like I know my, all my favorite cats are much nicer than Grebo. Grebo is someone you hire to murder your enemies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a bad boy, you know? And yeah. then he doesn't do it because you haven't paid him enough. <laughs> yeah. Or he saw something like more interesting to do. He got bored. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, and I think for our last one, it's from Sir Sarah Dudley. Which fairy tale do you think would have been great for a Discworld satire that wasn't already dealt with in Witches Abroad? I feel like a lot of the Grimm stuff would work really well. Underwater Discworld episode. By like Little Mermaid yeah, style. just underwater. Because <laughs> there's a lot of underwater like mythology to draw on as well. Like You can draw on a whole lot of different ones from different cultures. But yeah, Little Mermaid is a big one. I like Rumpelstiltskin because I feel like just having recently read a book about that was sort of based on Robin Stiltskin. Um, it's a good book about debt and about kind of learning how to pay your debts. And I feel like Pratchett would be able to spin like an <laughs> interesting story about Glod um, or <laughs> other dwarves um, yeah. into that kind of story really well. And I also think that it feels a bit more modern. Like I think if it were, I feel like Pratchett, is really strong when he writes about cities, which is why the Uncle Pork City Watch kind of um, books are always my favourites. And so, yeah, I think you'd have to find a fairy tale that has those sort of slightly urban elements mm. to it. So something where, you know, currency and money and um, has some kind of importance rather than just being about magic. Mm. Yeah. And that's all our questions. That brings us to the end of the episode. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Blessings be upon this podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, thank you so much for saying that. I feel better. I feel should have brought a potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Well, come down to Neighbourhood Books in Northcash if you want to come chat about Terry Pratchett in the store. Um, we do actually have some Terry Pratchett books in our very kind of small space. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm, okay. well, down. I would expect nothing less. We'll be back next month, of course, with our next book, which, Liz, what are we reading next month? Diggers. Oh, I'm going to return to the world of the gnomes. I'm so excited. Yay. I love the Bromeliad so much. Uh, we'll be back then. We will announce our guest when we have confirmed them. We're still firming up those details, but we hope that we'll have you back listening again, just as we've enjoyed you listening to all of the previous episodes. If you have, I mean, who knows, maybe this is your first one. But once again, we'd like to thank everyone who's been helping spread word about Pratt Chat. If you've liked the podcast, if you listen via iTunes or on your um, iDevice, we would love you to leave a review um, or at least give us a star rating. It really does help people find the podcast. Um, But until we see you next time, May you not be turned accidentally into a pumpkin or glod. Or a newt. Mm. 
but you'll get better. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Jackie Tang. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast or on the web at pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat12. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.